All you commanders, eagles, and angels, this is Zang Bird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night on BBS Radio 1. So, thank you for joining us here tonight, and I'd like to say a few words about the Bay as we just beginning a new wave signal of in the Mayan calendar, I mean, New Zolkin, so we, at day one, week one, tribe one, kin one, <laughs> one, 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 and, and union one, just so it's the beginning, and we're um, kind of dream again, a, a new birth in this next 260 days. So this is our dream week as we go through this, this wave, and, uh, so I wanted to take a few minutes to go into our heart space and set the tone for the evening. We'll talk about more of that later. So let's just take a few gentle breaths and go into our heart space and hear that calling drum. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently. Gather with your guides and guardians, your ancestors, your spirit teams, your animal totems, your healing teams, whoever you like to journey with. Journey with the 
about trusting in the universe and clarity mind, working with clarity of mind. Be clear about your intentions and embrace these gifts that, of the dragon, that force of creation, the beginning. If we let go of any illusion of lack of support, we embrace these energies today. And then moving on to Saturday, it's a two-eek, and so it's a two-two-two because two, two, it's, it's the second kin, the second day of the cycle, and it's the second glyph in the, or tribe, and it's the second tone. So we have those three tunes. Two. The white lunar wind, and it's a visionary aspect as well, the wind. Eek is its Mayan name. And our work with Eek is that it's working with co-creation of heaven on earth. So we work with truth in all matters. We work with remembering our unity with spirit as we embrace each gift. Having that ability to hear the voice of spirit and allowing spirit to work through us. So let go of any judgment of others or any secretiveness as we embrace these energies on Saturday and we'll gather together again tomorrow and do that good work. So, And then on Sunday, it's a three-ock ball or three threes. <laughs> so the blue electric night and it's also the full moon. So the full moon is at 1.29 p.m. Eastern time. So whatever that is in your time, it'll be in the morning for a lot of you. And uh, Akpa is the night. So we're working with that energy with this full moon in Leo. Akpa is an artist aspect, and it's asking us for our participation and our belief in our abundance. So we learn from the dream time, and we manifest the abundance we need in all the ways abundance shows up in our lives. And with our participation in that, what makes it happen. So let's embrace these gifts of that protection of the night and and being that mystery of life as we let go of any self-judgment or any withdrawal. And it's that three-tone we're working with as well as electric tone. So it's the blue electric night. And, um, yeah. That's activity. That's making that move. So start making that move on these dreams that we're dreaming away. And that's Sunday. And then moving along to Monday is the four con, the yellow self-existing seed. And this is the galactic signature day of our lovely Tara and our Don and Doug also share this galactic signature day. So, um, and it's a triple four as well. Is the the fourth kin, the fourth tribe, the fourth glyph uh, or tone, sacred tone, and it's the first union on the first way. So it comes with an eleven and <laughs> two ones and three fours. Powerful day on um, on Monday. It's a healing aspect. Con is the seed. So it's about that openness to life, that self determination. It's about harmony, seeking. And timing, that seed is so wise and it carries so much information. Just plant those seeds and nurture them. As we embrace these gifts of possibility and that potential of creation, that's in each and every seed. 
We let go of any stagnation or any lack of self-confidence. We let go of hesitation. Let go of any lack of trust as we embrace these energies on Monday. And, yeah, 444. And then on Tuesday, moving right along, 555, the serpent, the Chong, the warrior, and it's the overtone, the fifth tone. And uh, so we're working with the serpent energy is about remaining open to change and distinguishing our body and soul. It's about transmuting energy. So we embrace these gifts on Monday with that motivation to change. The gift of instinct, that body sensing, let us let go of any insecurities or fears around intimacy or issues about the body or any blockages by the ego as we embrace these energies on Monday, or rather Tuesday, excuse me, that overtone is that top of the pyramid. It's like activating that thing. So it's an activating tone as well. Or activated for transmutation. Just change our skin. <laughs> then on Wednesday, moving right along, it's a six kimi, the linker of worlds. That kimi drum <laughs> that knows how to link those worlds. So it's a warrior aspect, and it's about working with forgiveness and moving into a state of grace. As we embrace these gifts, being that world bridges, we bridge between the past and the future, and transmutation takes place. So let's let go of that which is no more. Let go of the ego. Let go of any controlling behavior. Let go of that idea that or belief that life is a struggle. With this energy on Wednesday, the six six six. Lady Master Nada's number, six kin, six tones, six tribes. And then on Thursday, a seven, Monique, seven, 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 the blue resonant hand. Uh, so Monique is a healing aspect. It's also Mayan, has another Mayan meaning, the deer. And so, <clears throat> which we know is the dolphin of the land from Tara's teaching. So... Let's embrace these, do this work of healing ourselves and others and create contentment and peace with this energy and work on that acceptance of the divinity of ourselves. We embrace these gifts of being that healer of humankind and that ability to open new doors. Let us let go of any distraction or any belief in inadequacy or any procrastination as we embrace these energies on Thursday and then finally we come back. We're at that stargate. It's a, it's a galactic stargate. And eight Lamont and it's yellow. The yellow galactic stargate. So it's a, or star. It's a visionary aspect and it's about working on elimination of humankind and opening that stargate. So we embrace these gifts of journeying, that pioneer spirit, that gift of having the power to see beyond the gate. Let's let let go of any dissonance or self-doubt as we embrace these energies on Friday in that galactic tone. So that 
that octave in that spin, <laughs> in that infinite tone of eight in the infinity. So, yeah, very powerful day. We'll talk about it some more next Friday when we get there. And uh, so there you go. That's the week ahead in the um, Mayan record of days. And happy New Year to a new 266-day cycle today. We celebrate that beginning of a new cycle. And uh, so let's take a few moments and as I change my hat and talk a little bit about the housekeeping, as we are a listener-supported radio program, all of us that make it happen. So this is where we reach out and ask you to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. And last week, you all were really, really good because everything's down this week from what we needed last week, and it was a lot. And you came through and shining colors, so so much gratitude. Good for you and good for all of us. <clears throat> lots of lots of gratitude. Um, so this week, all we need for the radio to keep abreast of the game is $326, which is great. And here's how we make a donation to our account at BBS Radio. Uh, you need to go to bbsradio.com and click on the menu selection on the homepage there for Radio Station 1. And there at the 6 o'clock hour, you'll find this program on Fridays listed, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And then on Thursday, you'll also you'll see at the 6 o'clock hour, a night at the round table with the panel. Either one of these two glyphs, as you click on them, will take you directly to our account with BBS Radio where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. Keeping us on the radio, supporting Don and Doug, and supporting all of us and our ability to gather here each week. We're grateful for that. So we're grateful for all that Don and Doug do. do. With their radio station, how they run it and work with those archives and keep up with things. So lots of gratitude to them. And... uh yeah, so thank you. Thank you for taking that action and showing up that way. And also on um, Saturdays, we have another program at the one thirty hour Pacific time, and it's the true history, history of this era and our galactic origins. So if you want to click on that icon, you can donate through there as well. All three of them work. So thank you for taking that action. So, we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And again, they don't need near as much. We, they, they, we all got her done. Beginning of next week, we'll need $150 to cover two bills. And they're requiring $200 for their living expenses for this week. So, that's a mere $350. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action and assisting Tara and Rama, here's how you do it. Um, you can contact their PayPal account by going to rainbowroundtable.net and clicking on the menu grid there on the homepage. You see the donate link down there at the bottom of that list on the menu. As you click on that, that'll link you to Rama's or the Rainbow Roundtable um, site at PayPal, 
And then if you want to access the friends option, you can do that by just going directly to paypal.com. And there where it is uh, asking you the email of the person you're gifting, you put in Rama's email there, and it is as follows. Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And there you go. That's two ways to do that. Either way is perfect. One of them, the second way, uh, accusates the friends option, so it just eliminates the commercial charges. But either way is perfect. We're so grateful for all your donations. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking care of the needs for Tara and Rama this week. And um, what else? Oh, yeah, as you're sending something, let Rama know. Send him an email and tell him what you sent when you sent it. And the email to use is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39, at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, the mailing address is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M, D. Berkowitz, D-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. That's Post Office Box 280280. And it's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. And again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We're grateful. We're grateful to assist Tyron and Rama for all they do to keep us updated with what's happening in the universe and, and on the ground with Faction 3 <laughs> galactic in, in information. So, so much gratitude to all that they do and share with us. And so much gratitude for all of you in all the ways that you share as well. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. Live long and prosper. <laughs> and I'm passing this talking stick. And it's got all kinds of Leo energy on it. That full moon's in Leo. And this got it's got tiger's tails. <laughs> And all kinds of feathers and fairies and all the little people and all the rays of the rainbow and all the galactic rays, just all over it. It's very beautiful and it's very healing. And it has Excalibur there with that sort of truth and what the call is coming along and all the little people. And so greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. Thank you, Rainbird. We are so grateful to be here. And breathing. Greetings. <laughs> Greetings. Oh, I uh, we were. I was listening more than Rama, but um, uh, to Chris Hayes tonight, and he was kind of making some comparisons with France. Um, Let's see. Uh, The gross um, 
domestic product for 2021 in France was $2.96 trillion. And in that same year, for the United States, it was $2.86 trillion. So rounded it off, it's just pretty much that we're, let's see, uh, uh, $10 trillion less in gross domestic product than France. And Ooh. I think the United States is a little bit bigger than France. Yeah. I'm just saying that happened. Um, I was a little surprised, but they did say that Peru, you know, next to the United States, and Peru has had a relative to the amount of people, wow, a lot of gun violence. Yeah. And uh, I'm just looking. Um, uh, then um, they went into said the U.S. gun deaths versus other countries. We have far more gun violence, cutting life short than any other any other uh, country. Yeah, pure country, pure country, and it's not even close. I was looking at the chart, and the U.S. gun deaths is sky high, and the other ones are kind of up and down a little bit in the bottom of the chart. I mean, there's no guns in Great Britain at all, and it's in, like, single digits, high single digits or lower, you know, double digits, the deaths every year. <laughs> We're looking at somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 at least gun deaths every year. And that's how many they didn't count in between there. And then our homicide rate has been climbing in recent years, and that's contributing to the deaths, um, increased deaths. And then suicide, which is the leading cause of death in fact in the United States are also up at rates we haven't seen in decades. And after years of decline, traffic fatalities are rising at levels not seen since the mid-2000s. The mid, yeah, the, the mid-2000s. They mean the mid-2000s. We're not at the mid-2000s yet. I'm not sure what that. <laughs> Oh, instead of the two teens, I guess, in the 220s. Okay, 2000s. 2000 to 2000s. About 2005 in there. Okay. Newly released estimates show traffic fatalities reached a 16-year high in 2021. And overdose, overdose deaths are shockingly high. I mean, uh, in 2020, 116,059 overdose deaths. In 2021, 142,135 overdose deaths. Yikesy, yikesy. Um, I'm just looking at stuff like this, and that they're kind of seemingly doing that too. 
we're starting a new year, and I think that's why they're doing that, right, Grandma? Uh-huh. How about you say something, I'll pass the talking stick, about, you know, <clears throat> what you experienced today. Oh, um, I got a text message from Tom, Larry, Curly, and Moe, and they said that Chinese balloon uh, is connected with the deep state because they are very much at the edge of out of options to create distractions. I'm sure they have more, you know, toys they could play with. And Dr. Greer has said for many years they would like to play with their toys from Area 51, which is not a pleasant thought, so to speak. But this Chinese balloon story is, like Larry said, a plot right out of Rocky and Bullwinkle from the 60s. And it's kind of dumb, but at the same time kind of scary because they're talking about it in the sense that the balloon is about the size of two school buses, which is quite large. And if it did... That's a large balloon, yeah. And if it did fall, it might cause some problems. And, all, you know, they had a meeting with the joint... But that's just hot air in there. Yeah. And <laughs> why is it, you know, going over Montana missile silos... I see. Did they say it really was just a balloon? Yeah, all the stories today. No, I'm talking about your facts in Three White Nights. Did they say that? Verify they said, it? It, you know, everything about it appears to be like it's a balloon. And but didn't they say it's just a false flag thing? It's a false flag kind of thing. So, and they're playing with stuff because they want to escalate the situation between China. Joe Biden is, you know, they're saying the job market is the lowest, you know, um, job. Uh, it's, you know. No, it's the highest amount of jobs ever. Yes. Since 1967. Yes. And That's a big deal. In other words, the U.S. unemployment is at the lowest since 1967. That's right. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... I... I, I mean, all the stories are about the mainstream news, and they are very much in a place where... The next step is it's not about how much war we can create, but how many bridges to peace we can create. Mm -hmm. This is what Tom, Larry, Curley, and Mo said today. <laughs> and it's As we create kindness and compassion with each other, no matter what the issues are going on, there's always room 
through the path to peace. Essentially, that's the message I've heard today. And all the other stuff going on is just one side bitterly fighting with the other side. And it is about... I can just say, Ilhan Omar needs to be on that committee. And they already kicked her off. Mama. Yeah. The Foreign Affairs Committee. Yes. She has the experience. This is about that number one issue with a big R. Uh, <laughs> What's that? It's the fact that she comes from Somalia, and she's a woman of color, and she's Islamic, and that's a big, uh, since... Oh, two R's, race and religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I just got to say, the Galactics are here, and as we learn about the divinity within us as we are all creator beings, creator gods and goddesses of the most high. And this, yeah, if we only had a clue who we yeah, are. Yeah, like Cryon has been saying, I don't know for how many years, you know, as you could see yourself, like we see you, just <laughs> the image that comes to mind is that last scene in the movie Ghost when Sam says goodbye to his beloved and he says there's so much love in this circle and it's tangible and you can feel it and you can see it and they tried to portray it in the movie as he joined that circle and it is absolutely real. And this is what the dark do not want us to get. And they are fighting as hard as they can with ridiculous stories of balloons spying on us and the other fiascos about equality of people that are gay, bi, transgender, and there are so many souls here that have a part to play in this story. Every soul has a part in the great circle as we all come together and share our stories, storytelling. This is how we shift the consciousness with each other. And it goes exponentially out across the galaxy, across the universe. This has been going on forever. And, um, place of violent fire, I passed the talking stick. You do. <laughs> well... We have about 10 minutes. 
I guess the other conversation is, you know, astrologically. Um, yeah, we got a full moon in Leo, and it is that big-hearted energy of Alcyone showing up. Um, Tanya calls the, the, the Leo full moon corresponds to the royal star of the lion. And that's exact on this Sunday. And also she says uh, 2023 activates the number 23. And that, again, represents the royal star of the lion number. So Leo lion energy always adds passion, enthusiasm, fun, expression, unabashed, heart-centered, courage. Courage. <laughs> like the lion in is that the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. <laughs> so much in your life is being cleared with courage now. Don't shy away from any challenges and supervising developments. All is in divine order to strengthen us. We are being fortified from within. To add to this excitement, a fortunate triple seven code is activated. 2023 is a seven universal year. Moon is at 16 degrees Leo and Sun is at 16 degrees Aquarius. 16 reduces to seven, two times, both the Moon and the uh, Moon in 16 and the Sun in 16 Aquarius. Moon in 16 Leo Sun. Yeah, and that's just for starters. Turn the page. Oh. Leo is ruled by the sun, so your inner light is shining very brightly. Uranus will be in a very tight and tense T-square to the sun and the moon. The sun will be in Aquarius opposite the moon in Leo. And Aquarius is ruled by Uranus. Sudden very sudden change. And going like going from rags to riches, I can take that. Can you take that now? Yes. We better know what to do with it this time. We sure did some funny stuff along the way in the past. Mm, <laughs> so you'll feel a blast of excitable, surprising energy. Unexpected developments are designed to ignite your enthusiasm and awaken confidence. It's a striking full moon, unfortunately inviting you to step onto the stage and express yourself without limitation. Discover the secrets of the Leo full moon. Blessings and love, Tanya Gabrielle. She has a little P.S. note here. She says, during this empowering Leo Lion activation, take the opportunity to unlock your three Jupiter wealth 
zones, three of them. See how you are personally aligned to activate joy, courage, and fulfillment beyond your wildest dreams by discovering the magical code Jupiter activates uh, in our birth charts. Each one of us has something unique about that. Uh, and what's being said here is at the time you were born, Jupiter was in a specific sign and a specific house. In fact, you have three unique Jupiter wealth zones in your birth chart. And she's saying you can click there to find out more. Jupiter is wealth, abundance, prosperity, expansion, everything we're hoping and looking for. So what else, Rama? We've got five minutes to share something. Tom Hartman said this morning that growing fascism in America is in an arms race for those who aspire to lead. That's the that's that's true. Which what he's saying is that these Republicans they they're only fighting with each other really yes and you know who can you know outdo each other outdo the next and there's another comment here fascism is intertwined with oligarchy it is it certainly is um fascism's main doctrines are hate and intolerance. That's true. Oh, I don't know. As President Lyndon Johnson said, pointed out, out back in the day, as you can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. He won't notice you're picking his pocket. Mm-hmm. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Right. Divide and conquer is the key to spreading fascism. Separate people from each other by skin color, ancestry, gender, religion. Then convince each group that the other is out to get them. Former Secretary of State and author of fascism. A warning. The late Madeleine Albright noted in an interview with Vox, quote, fascism is not an ideology. It is a process for taking and holding power. A fascist is somebody who, who identifies with one group, usually an aggrieved minority. Yeah. In oppression to a smaller group. It's about minority rule without any minority rights. Which is why fascists tend to single out the smallest group as being responsible for or the cause of their grievances. Fascism's main tools are violence and intimidation. Fascists are essentially bullies. They attack those with less power. Mm -hmm. Less power than themselves. And they use those attacks to hold power or gain more power for themselves. 
straight white men control the vast majority of America's wealth and political power. Disproportionate to their population, which is exactly why the the CIS Christian white male supremacist fascist movement within today's Republican Party focuses their attacks on immigrants, women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community. From And again, um, it's a funny thing. Um, I think the diversity of what's going on right now has to do with a very complex set of belief systems that have been clashing, you know, and uh, and, uh, what do you think, Rama? It goes back to Atlantis and Lemuria and Babylon. What's all of that going on back then too, right? Yes. And And then some. The story of our, um, the, you know, the fallen angels and the Anunnaki and oh my god too many stories and not enough uh, time to tell them but there's more than enough time (laughs) from Trump tearing families apart at the border trafficking the youngest Hispanic kids into Christian adoption systems to DeSantis flying asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, to attacks on drag queens and librarians as groomers, denying the essential humanity of others is foundational to fascist formation, performance and recruiting art. What? Okay, so we got the drift. Okay, Rama, let's have the numbers for us to go to the conference call. Uh, 720716. 7301 and the pin code is 353863 pound. Okay, so we'll be there for the next hour and then we'll be back here. BBS Radio, the best radio there is. There is no other place uh, to go for good vibrations at a higher level. I don't mean that everybody's Underneath, I'm just saying that there is a community here that is an, a good example, a very good example of how we do this. You know, how we have something to find together, stay in common there, and joy and fun and love and all good things come to us. So we'll see you on the conference. Namaste, everyone. Come and join us.
hatred led me so long Where there is injury, pardon Where there is doubt, faith Where there is despair, hope Where there is darkness, light Where there is sadness, joy Oh, divine master Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. In order for the patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new contingency plan to tangibly manifest in the physical plane, 
our help is needed. Through the unified efforts of heaven and earth, we have now formed the foundation of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love, upon which the patterns of perfection for the fifth dimensional new earth will now be sustained. These patterns are pulsating in the fifth dimensional record keeper crystals that were recently placed in Mother Earth's crystal grid system by the mighty Elohim. In alignment with universal law, the call for assistance must come from the realm where the assistance is needed. That means that in order for the life-transforming patterns for the new contingency plan to manifest in the physical plane, they must be breathed onto the newly balanced and elevated holy breath through the heart flames of the sons and daughters of God abiding in the physical plane. This is true even though we are receiving unprecedented collaboration at this time from the company of heaven. So let's join our hearts and minds with our Father, Mother, God, the entire company of heaven, and the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. Together, we are the open door that no one can shut for the patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new contingency plan. These patterns are now pulsating within the mental and emotional strata of Mother Earth. They are just waiting for our invocations in order to begin manifesting in the physical plane through our heart flames. This is an invocation that has been given to us by the company of heaven. The beings of light reveal that the patterns from the new contingency plan in this invocation are patterns that we are able to comprehend at this time with our limited perception. However, as we invoke each pattern, our I am presence will magnetize the full divine momentum and potential of each pattern into the physical plane of Mother Earth through our heart flames. This assistance from our I am presence will expand these patterns to include exquisite multidimensional frequencies, colors, musical tones, viable solutions, heart-based concepts, divine templates, and blissful celestial experiences beyond our current level of perception. All of these gifts from on high are now pulsating in Mother Earth's new contingency plan. I will state this invocation in the first person so that each of us will experience this activity of light personally. But know that we are simultaneously serving as instruments of God on behalf of every man, woman, and child on earth, whether he or she is in or out of embodiment. As we are lifted up, all life is lifted up with us. As we invoke this light, each person's I am presence will breathe these patterns through our heart flame 
on our perfectly balanced, masculine and feminine, elevated holy breath. The patterns will then be secured on the newly formed foundation of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love. This will be done in perfect alignment with Mother Earth's divine plan and the highest good for all concerned. And we begin. I am my I am presence, and I am one with my omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Father, Mother, God, the cosmic I am, all that is. I am one with the fifth dimensional silent watchers and the entire company of heaven. I am also one with the I am presences of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. Beloved ones, blaze in through and around every person, place, condition, and thing on Earth, the most intensified frequencies of God's infinite light that humanity is capable of receiving. Let this sacred fire from the very heart of God penetrate and saturate every electron of precious life energy, lifting and raising all life on earth out of every discordant frequency into the patterns of perfection for the new earth. Increase this influx of divine light daily and hourly with every balanced and elevated holy breath I take until Mother Earth and all life are tangibly manifesting the new contingency plan and the wonders of the new Earth. I am the open door for these exquisite patterns for the new Earth. I am in-breathing these patterns from the mental and emotional strata of earth into my heart flame. And I am breathing out these patterns through my heart flame to bless all life on this planet. As I breathe these life-transforming patterns into the physical plane of earth through my heart flame, my Father, Mother, God, and the entire company of heaven secure them on the newly formed foundation of my Mother God's comprehensive divine love. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for the infinite flow of God's abundance, opulence, financial freedom, and the God's supply of all good things. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for eternal youth, vibrant health, radiant beauty, and flawless form and function of my earthly bodies.
I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of Earth, the patterns for perfect health habits, including eating and drinking habits, exercise, work, relaxation, and recreation habits. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for my spiritual growth and my spiritual devotion, meditation and contemplation. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth the patterns for divine family life, loving relationships, adoration, divine love, divine sexuality, true understanding, clear and effective communication, open heart sharing, oneness, and the unification of the family of humanity. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for eternal peace, trust, harmony, balance, truth, and reverence for all life. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for self-empowerment, success, fulfillment, divine purpose, a rewarding career, self-esteem, spiritual development, enlightenment, divine consciousness, and divine perception. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns that will initiate open heart and mind telepathic communication with my father, mother, God, the company of heaven and the angelic and elemental kingdoms. I am in-breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns that will inspire creativity through music, singing, sound, toning, dance, movement, art, and education. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of earth, the patterns for laughter, joy, playfulness, fun, elation, enthusiasm, self-expression, 
bliss, ecstasy, wonder, and awe. I am breathing through my heart flame into the physical plane of Earth, the patterns that will tangibly manifest heaven on Earth through a renaissance of God's comprehensive divine love and unity consciousness. I now accept and know through every facet of my being that these patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new contingency plan have been successfully breathed through my newly balanced and elevated heart flame. These patterns are now encoded in the causal body of our Father Mother God, and they are beginning to tangibly form on the foundation of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love. My I am presence will intensify these patterns every day with every perfectly balanced and elevated holy breath I take until the fifth dimensional new earth is physically manifest and Mother Earth and all her life are expressing the infinite perfection of our new fifth dimensional crystalline solar reality. In deep humility, divine love and infinite gratitude, I decree, it is done, and so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, beloved I am. Dear one, allow this profound truth to register in your conscious mind and your heart of hearts. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. So our group finds ourselves on our second day of touring around the Azores. And yesterday's channel gave a startling revelation that the Lemurians did indeed come to these islands. And perhaps that isn't startling information for those who feel energy that have been to these islands before because those who feel energy have always felt that there was something special about this place, not just the ecological and biodiversity uniqueness of it, but the energy of it. And all of the myths and legends that surround this place 
have to do with esoteric information. They're not myths and legends like we have in Glastonbury of heroes during war and conquering eras. It's always myths and legends about esoteric information. So I think this is a wonderful setting to be able to share what one of those core teachings were that the Lemurians came with them to this island. In our Lemurian teaching wheel workshop, we focus on the five spoke wheel. And one of those spokes that we teach is called child life. Now, child life, in the teaching of this subject, the children are given one version. And when they have their initiation, they're taught the adult version. So for the women, it's actually when they have menses. That is when they get initiated. And that is when they learn about the adult version of those deeper truths. So what are the children version and what are the adult version of that spoke child life? Well, here are the three things they teach the children. The first one is that joy is sacred. Joy is sacred. Joy is absolutely sacred. And the second thing they teach is about sustaining joy. So not only is joy sacred, but the ability to sustain joy, sustaining joy. And the third thing the children are taught is laughing exercises. You can imagine how much fun doing laughing exercises would create even more joy because laughter is contagious. You cannot sit in a room with someone laughing infectiously without giving in to your own giggles and then exploding into laughter yourself. So these were the things that the children were taught. But then as adults, this information on the child life spoke moved into other subjects. And that first subject was related to longevity. Why would having child life be related to longevity? Well, Crane has said that as soon as you start losing your inner child, you begin dying every day. That is how important it is to sustain and have joy in your life, to have that childlike innocence of joy and happiness. So here's the other thing the adults learnt about child life. It was about healing because indeed if you could embrace that joy and inner child it brings healing and lastly this one 
is probably a little difficult for most because the adults were told about passing to the other side of the veil with joy. Oh, that's a pretty tough one. How do we treat those who are in a situation where they're passing and transitioning? uh, How is that treated in our culture? It's not always treated with joy. And yet this is what the core spiritual truth was about, about passing to the other side of the veil with joy. Because that is reconnecting to that oneness. And they all knew about going back to that original source. So why do I bring up this subject of joy? Because this is really the essence of the trip that we are having. And in the afternoon, we are about to embark on another excursion, this time to see whales, whale watching. And what is the best thing you can do to attract whales and dolphins? It is absolutely to have joy. The thing that dolphins will come to is children laughing hysterically on the boat. They didn't spend time meditating and getting prepared. That works, by the way. But laughter, happiness and joy is the vibration that really gets their attention. So in that spirit of happiness and joy, let's continue by hearing another heart-filled, joyful message from Cryon. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. This is the second channel in that which you call the Azores. The group sits outside on the grass. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. It's a great day for me to give you information, some of which I've given before. Those listening to this channel now and later, I have a message for you. I don't expect that you have heard all of the information that I have given over the years especially when it comes to certain esoteric things about the earth. But when you come to a place like this, it's time to repeat some things or to clarify some things or go to a place that you didn't expect to within your heart as perhaps you start to cognize or Take within certain concepts that maybe you never did before. Each human being in their lives has a time where they can get quiet or not and begin to ponder the things 
that perhaps are the most important to them and maybe even the esoteric things, the metaphysical ones, things you cannot see or measure, like love, for instance, <laughs> or compassion, for instance. Show me the love meter or the compassion instrument. And yet these are profound consciousnesses on the planet. I told you something long ago that I'm going to repeat today and clarify. And it's very esoteric. So get ready for things you cannot see. But as we explain them, I ask you for common sense and a reality of of thinking. Dear ones, when this earth was put together and the creation of humanity's spirituality happened, your creation story, the earth also had changes, not just the humans. You have three grids that I have spoken of. There's actually more. But I have spoken of three, a physical one, which you call the magnetic grid, which does far more than you think. A second one called a Gaia grid and another one called the crystalline grid. Now we call these grids, but do not then linearize it and see them pasted upon the earth in some strange linear fashion. Think of them as part of the planet. Think of them as perhaps glowing in a certain way with the planet. Don't put them as a structure or you'll lose the emphasis of this message. Now let's talk about something. We have spoken to you of the Gaia grid. Now, I want you to use not just your imagination or your esoteric mind, but your logic. If you are someone who is called a tree hugger, do you feel anything from this earth as you walk along and look at the majesty of the mountains or indeed hug a tree? I want to ask those sensitives, is there anything there? Or are you just enamored with a plant? Do you feel communications from the planet to you in any way? Not perhaps in words, but in, in emotions or consciousness or anything. And the answer is yes. Yes. There are so many who use this planet and the energy of it to help those around them. They actually know that there's energy around the planet that speaks to them in, in certain ways. Did you know that the Gaia grid actually interfaces with astrology? It's the only way you could have astrocartography work. There are energies you cannot feel all the time, but some sensitives 
are very aware of them when they want to be. That's the Gaia grid. So use your logic for a moment before we go to the next one. There is an energy transmission that happens from the earth to you. How do you explain it? The earth has sentience, it's mother earth. You might even say there's a form of a consciousness of this planet. Now, does that interface somehow with the magnetics of the earth? The answer is yes. Every grid works with the other one in complex ways. And now we get to the most esoteric of them all. The third one. It's called the crystalline grid. You cannot see it. Scientists will not admit it. And it's very, very metaphysical. Now we're going to describe what it does. And then I'm going to enhance that description with a couple of examples. The crystalline grid of this planet is the one that remembers. Now, you know why it's called crystalline, don't you? What is it in physics, in crystals that you know? You know that this particular stone, if you want to call it that, among all others, is capable of storing frequency. It's even used in electronics. And so the crystalline grid is named this way for it stores something. It stores human consciousness and it's localized. Let me explain. Let's take a sensitive for a moment. Now a sensitive is a human being who can sense energy around them. And let's ask that sensitive to walk into a field and tell us what has happened there. And sometimes that sensitive will say, I don't feel anything. Or the sensitive might think and say, oh, there was something here and how beautiful this was. But if you take them to a place that used to be a battlefield, even if it's unmarked, they may even fall to their knees and weep. Because they are sensing the battle. Now, are they sensing fear? Are they sensing the death that happened, the despair, the sorrow? Or are they sensing the consciousness of a person who might be in battle or passing over? I'll get to that in a moment. But follow my logic. What is that the sensitive is feeling? And you might say, well, something happened here, and so they're feeling it. That is not a good answer. That's not a practical answer. Let's say I'm a physicist. Let's say I'm a physicist who understands that there's energy in the ground because I'm watching people weep when they walk there. 
the physicist will ask the question, what is the energy transmission? How is this possible that a battle from hundreds of years ago would affect a human today who is simply walking through? That, dear ones, is the crystalline grid. There is a grid that remembers human consciousness. And that human consciousness can be anything. It can be a battle. And so much more. I want to tell you about consciousness. People confuse it with emotion. And it isn't. Your world war wars were dramatic, sorrowful. The horror of the planet, all wrapped up for you to look at and see. At the beginning of World War I, 1914 actually, the Pope declared a truce at Christmas. And as the stories will have it and the legends would have it, that day on the Western Front, in many places, the battle ceased and that the soldiers even would come out of their trenches and exchange supplies, perhaps coffee. Some say there were even gifts, although that is not exactly what happened. There have been many exaggerations, but dear ones, it did happen and the fighting stopped and the men indeed came out of their trenches and looked at one another. There was one instance where they sang a Christmas hymn together. Now, here's what I want to ask you. What kind of a truce was that? And the answer is this. No matter what the differences were in those soldiers, they had a commonality. And their commonality was their belief system of the sacredness of the master of love, the Christ. They were Christians. And so they had the same songs, believe it or not, even in different languages, German and English. They had the same ideas of the nativity, of the celebration, of the birth, of the prophet that they loved. And what was it then that brought them together? And the anxious, the answer is obvious. It is the consciousness of the compassion of love. It wasn't political. It, it wasn't a truce so that those on both sides could look at it differently. It wasn't. It was a cause to celebrate a consciousness. This is what we're talking about. This is the power of love, of consciousness that would allow the ceasing between two enemies in battle that lasted and lasted, and then they stopped and sang songs for a little while. That's the power that we speak of. Let's go to Lemuria for a moment. The island of Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii, it's very similar to this one. There is volcanic activity today. There are places that steam just like here. Can you feel perhaps 
that there is a connection even to that place and this one as you walk, even if you have not been to the other, perhaps you can relate. And on that island, there is a place called the city of refuge. And at certain times of year, in the ancient times, any warrior could go there with any other warrior, even if they were at current battle stations. Indeed, there were wars in Hawaii in the latter part, not the Lemurian part. And that is what I speak of. They both could go there at certain times of year, shake hands, sing songs, have food together. Everything was forgiven at that moment. Others who were not warriors would go there, who had done bad things in their life and had low consciousness and were starting to to think about what they had done. And they could go there and be safe in complete safety of being persecuted for anything. A city of refuge, dear ones, what would this be? Why would this be? Because at some level, human beings came together and said, we need a place where we celebrate the consciousness of forgiveness, the consciousness of love and compassion, where nothing really matters but love. These are the examples I wanted to show you of what consciousness does to humanity. High consciousness of love and compassion is one of the strongest energies anywhere. It comes from the creative source, dear ones. It comes from the angels, dear ones. And why is this important? Because of what I told you about here. The crystalline grid is pure here. And what I mean by that is there have been no wars and there have been no battles and there have been no horror here. Whether it's the ancients or the current civilizations, this is pure. What has happened here is that the ancients carried here truth and joy and teaching and beauty. And the crystalline grid in this place radiates that. Have you felt it yet? (laughs) You might say, well, which island in particular? And I'll tell you that when they were here, there were no nine islands. It was raised high enough so that it was a small landmass, much like Lemuria. And so everywhere you go, you will find places where you might feel something and it won't be negativity. There is no dark thing here hiding. There is only that which is the highest energy on the planet. The crystalline grid is going to radiate compassion, consciousness of love and pure teaching. 
That combined with Gaia's energy, there's nothing like it. Do you feel it yet? This is going to be a very attractive place. There will be many coming here in the future, especially as humanity starts to increase and evolve in consciousness. Right off of the continent of Portugal, a place where you can come, where the earth speaks to you and the crystalline grid talks to you. And you can raise your hand and say, I am home. A good place to be, even for a little while, dear ones. Let it feed your soul. And so it is. And so it is, everyone. We're all servants of peace. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. One of your very own Pashats is greeting you in the light of the most radiant one. In the light of the most radiant one. In the, the office, office of the Christ. And only in the office of the Christ. We invoke. The loving energy of Saint Germain and the violet flame. We ask at this time, Mother, for an awareness at a higher place in our consciousness of all that is, of the magnitude of the mission and who we are to be able to experience and take in the love that is the oneness of all of us being here together and you know that we can have some joy and know it in our hearts that this story is moving in a direction of light that we're just beginning to comprehend. And I know you will say it very well, and I pass this talking stick to you. Greetings, Mother. Greetings. Greetings, children of Ra. Yes. Things are only looking up. It is a very 
intense time to be here. Yeah, we all asked to show up right now. Mm. Yes, it's exciting. At the same time, terrifying with what's going on. What we can say about it is the time we are in is as it's supposed to be with the energies rising up. The shift of the ages is at hand. Moving into Aquarius is a very big deal mm -hmm. at this time. It's what we have been waiting for as miracles and magic come into play of how our local systems we get to meet and greet each other and right here and now is this time as things escalate with the light coming in Hmm. Last time this came about, great ships in the civilizations. This experience we are having all the crystals, all the various forms of life are calling us to interact in a way where this circle of life is interacting with us.
as you experience the light coming in from the sun. Today, there was minor M-class flares. Some of the flares were directed towards Earth. Some were directed away from Earth. Yet the magnetic frequencies that pour in affect everyone and everything. It is quite hairy to see from our vantage point most exciting events unfolding I cry I was speaking about the energies interacting with us talk to the crystals in your life this crystalline grid fully awake alive it is hooked up with all the ley lines song lines dragon lines hmm as you get the notion or you get pushed to go visit a portal listen to the intuition there are much to be learned from these places that are pouring forth the wisdom at hand. As we use our gifts and abilities to experience these places can do it right here, right now. All you need to do is focus through the third eye where you want to go. It will take you there. The magic of this form we have to interact with the various realms It is the most exciting time 
to be alive experience what's unfolding this is new territory ascension is assured how we deal with these ascension frequencies is learning how to love what's unfolding in spite of how intense it is This full moon here with Leo. Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. T square coming into play. Uranus sudden shifts out of the blue a so-called balloon shows up today <laughs> whatever it might be there are many things going on in many realms it is about earth ascending and us with her. This particular moment in this galactic cycle of the return of Satyuga, we can let you know all the divas, all the angels, all the masters are here. Even those ones we call our children, wayward children. Mm -hmm. They know the mm -hmm. time's up. Love is the answer how we do this. This is the test. Done it before. We're here with you. Not going anywhere. <laughs> But right here. <coughs> In these temples. 
of living radiant love. It's an amazing time to be here. The stories of the day. As we all can see, love is greatly needed in many of the situations at hand. Mm-hmm. His Holiness Kundun, what he speaks of, his actions as we interact with each other. Compassion and kindness bring enlightenment. It's a way in which this time around we get to take it with us. Where are we going, Mother? Through the high heart (laughs) into heaven on earth that we are creating right here, right now. Do you think we have a clue? Yes, we do. (laughs) We would say in this particular cycle of going from Kali Yuga to Sat Yuga. We got all our marbles this time around. Last time there were a few missing. (laughs) How come? What changed? Because we got our egos involved in this story. Our wayward children still think they got the upper hand. Well, I'm just asking how how much more (coughs) of this song and dance. Not much more at all. It's taking place as we are taking a moment here to talk, convey the sound frequencies, thought form energies of love's holy flame in this cycle of infinite oneness. It's 
not easy being in this realm, knowing what we all know. That's why the intensity happens and it is of our biggest lessons is to walk through this not get into issues of who's correct with what's happening it's about the unfolding of a shift that You want to regenerate. You want to be here forever. How it begins is in the heart. Regenerate the resonance of the heart. You will hear Greg Braden tomorrow talk about this. A man of great wisdom, Mother. Thank you for reminding us. Yes. Remember, got more than one brain in this body. <laughs> it's going to take all of the brains to get it right. <laughs> and it's about listening to your heart, the gut. All the messages coming in, like it's been said, can talk to your DNA and it will change. It is magic, but it is the magic of love, science, that only now getting touched upon by these folks. Mm. Heart, brain, math. God is goddess, is a number. Flow with the ones and the zeros. Because after all, there's only one here. It's all of us. Huh. We might sound ridiculous, yet ascension is ridiculously simple. We get it screwed up with our egos. That's what got in the way last time around. Oh, please. We're not going to do this again, <coughs> are we? 
headlight, taillight stuck. <laughs> and you want to ascend, not about that. <laughs> Funny story in Genesis. Sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of men. Hmm. Mother in 13 days, it's Valentine's Day. Oh, happy Valentine's Day. No, 11 days, excuse me. 11 days, it's Valentine's Day. Time for a lot more love to return. It is a good thing. Penny was saying, where did January go? Oh, into <laughs> the wind. <laughs> it is a time to be hmm, just blessed to be here. We have rambled on enough. Oh, on the 20th, it's President's Day. And then on the 22nd, it's Ash Wednesday. It is moving at quantum light speed. The return of the Christ. And then, resurrection. Hmm. A new year. Can war be over, please? This is what this story is about called the Aquarian Age. Golden Age. War is a thing of the past. The twenty fourth of this month it'll be a whole year in a, in Ukraine. Oh, of course. Ellie would like to play with another Russian invasion oh, into Ukraine. Cancel clear. So what the Haven't media, that fake Putin been worn out yet? The stories about this oh. are many and varied. It is about the deep state fighting with itself. And, hmm, how many ways can you fight your shadow? Gotta embrace it. Hmm, that is the real work. And we must be on our way. You have hmm, lot to share here. Greetings. Thank you, Mother. In the light. Until we meet again. At the most radiant one. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayon. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayon.
Tito, everybody. Welcome back. Mm. I'm here. Yeah, are you all the way back? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where are you back from? Mount Kailash, listening to the song of Shiva. Omadni Padmi Hum. Yes. Yes, Tigger. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the time is now. Listen to the oneness. That's that's the message. Listen to the Blessed oneness pouring in and <sighs> kindness and compassion, the order of the day. It's how we get through it. I passed a talking stick. Oh, thank you, Rama. We're going to, what? This is a real task here to listen to what is coming forth now with kindness and compassion. Yes. <clears throat> and unconditional divine neutrality. Yes. Okay, that's what we're going to do as we listen to democracy now, everybody. Here we go. It's coming. From New York, this is Democracy Now! When I first heard the news, I thought, great, I've been canceled in Florida. 
I think it's wonderful actually that now that many of us have uh, been excluded from being taught in this AP course, it'll be a backlash. And now all our names are out there. So the students who not get access to us through the course can now Google us and find our work in other ways. The College Board has removed Black Lives Matter, slavery, reparations, and queer theory as required topics in the curriculum for its AP African American Studies course. Were the changes made in response to criticism from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and other conservatives? We'll speak with two professors whose work has been removed from the new curriculum, E. Patrick Johnson and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. They both teach at Northwestern. We'll also talk to Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed. Then we'll talk to an asylum seeker here in New York who's just been evicted from a hotel where he was staying among hundreds of migrants. Now the city is moving many of them to a remote location in Brooklyn. Many of us who don't have work, it gets complicated because we don't know or don't have anywhere to go, don't have money to rent a place. Others, the majority have been able to get work in Manhattan. Now, sadly, they have to be transferred to Brooklyn. Many are going to have to give up their jobs. Many of us lost our jobs once again. We're in the street once again, starting from scratch. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As Pope Francis visits South Sudan today, 27 people, including five children, were killed in clashes between cattle herders and militia members Thursday. The Vatican said the Pope's visit came in the hopes of reinvigorating a troubled peace process following a decade of conflict in South Sudan since its establishment in 2011. The Pope's visit comes after he spent the week in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where more than a million worshippers attended his mass in Kinshasa. He condemned the simultaneous exploitation and neglect of the region by Western powers. The poison of greed has smeared its diamonds with blood. This is a tragedy to which the economically more advanced world often closes its eyes, ears, and mouth. Yet this country and this continent deserve to be respected and listened to. They deserve to find space and receive attention. Hands off the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Hands off Africa. Stop choking Africa. It is not a mine to be stripped or a terrain to be plundered. On Thursday, protesters gathered outside Kinshasa's Notre Dame Cathedral to denounce systemic sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Advocates are drawing attention to the case of a 14-year-old girl who was raped by a priest in the DRC and demanding the church apply a 2019 law enacted by the Pope to hold bishops accountable for sex abuse or for covering it up. This is Tim Law, founder of Ending Clergy Abuse. What happened after the abuse was reported to the bishop, the real sisters and priests that reported it all got fired, and the order disbanded, and the girl has left the country in fear of her life. If the Pope doesn't enforce this law, uh, he's sending a message throughout all of Africa, bishops, it doesn't matter, do what you want. If he enforces this law, he sends a message that he, that he cares about the African children. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has welcomed the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to Kyiv for talks on Ukraine's push to join the European Union. EU officials have said Ukraine's accession to the 27-member oh, bloc will, yeah. at a minimum, take several more years as Ukraine needs to ensure more anti-corruption measures. At Thursday's summit, von der Leyen also said the Commission will set up a dedicated office at The Hague to prosecute war crimes committed by Russia during its war in Ukraine. Her remarks came as Russian President Vladimir Putin compared Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II. Putin spoke at a ceremony in Volgograd commemorating the 80th anniversary of the Red Army's victory over Nazi forces. Now, unfortunately, we see that the ideology of Nazism in its modern form and manifestation once again directly threatens the security of our country. Again and again, we have to repel the aggression of the collective West. It is believed possibly more than 200,000 Russian soldiers have died in Ukraine. On Capitol Hill, House Republicans have removed Minnesota Democratic Congress member Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee after accusing her of anti-Semitism. Omar has been outspoken in her support of Palestinian rights, has been repeatedly accused by Republicans and some Democratic leaders for questioning U.S.-Israeli relations and criticizing the power of AIPAC and the Israeli lobby in Washington. Congress member Omar spoke from the House floor after 218 Republicans voted to strip her committee assignments in Thursday's party-line vote. I didn't come to Congress to be silent. I came to Congress to be their voice. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. Congressmember Omar came to the United States as a refugee after her family fled civil war in Somalia. She's one of the first Muslim women to serve in the House. Democrats accused Republicans of political retribution over the removal of far-right Congress members Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committee assignments in the last Congress due to their violent, racist rhetoric. In 2021, Congressmember Gosar became the first lawmaker to be censured in more than a decade for posting an animated video on social media where he murders Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and attacks President Biden. This is Congressmember Ocasio-Cortez speaking from the House floor Thursday. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdicate, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology. My life was threatened. Thank you.
Meanwhile, the House approved a bipartisan resolution Thursday to, quote, denounce the horrors of socialism. The non-binding measure passed with the support of every Republican. 109 Democrats voted yes, 86 voted no, 14 voted present. Wisconsin Democrat Mark Pocan, who voted no, said, quote, this resolution is plain ridiculous. It jointly condemns Pol Pot and Norway, he said. He accused Republicans of staging the vote to pressure Democrats to accept cuts to Social Security and Medicare. In immigration news, nearly a 1,000 asylum-seeking families remain separated after their children were forcibly taken at the U.S.-Mexico border under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy. That's according to the Homeland Security Department, which reported on Thursday that a task force created by the Biden administration has only been able to reunite some 689 children with their parents and relatives. An estimated 5,500 migrant children were separated from their families during during Trump's time in office. Thousands have since been found and reunited with loved ones, largely due to the work of advocacy groups like the ACLU. President Biden had vowed to stop the practice and to pay reparations to the families separated by Trump, but his administration has now refused to pay restitution, while data shows Biden immigration officials have separated hundreds of families at the southern border. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus met with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris at the White House Thursday, a day after the funeral of Tyree Nichols. This is Nevada Democrat Stephen Horsford, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. The death of Tyree Nichols uh, is yet another example of why we do need action. Uh, but you are led on the action that we've been able to take through executive order. Uh, we need your help. Uh, to make sure we can get the legislative actions uh, that are necessary to save lives and to make public safety the priority that it needs to be for all communities. In New Jersey, a 30-year-old councilwoman was shot dead in her car outside her home Wednesday in the town of Sayreville, New Jersey. Eunice Duomfor was elected in 2021, was remembered by a colleague as someone who, quote, wanted to make a better community for all our children, unquote. The identity of the killer, their motive unknown. She leaves behind a young daughter and her husband. A federal court has struck down a ban on gun ownership for some perpetrators of domestic violence. The ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals relies on an antiquated interpretation of gun laws and comes as the U.S. is seeing a surge of gun violence. The Gun Violence Archive says there were 52 mass shootings last month, making it the deadliest January since it started tracking such data. A 2021 study found over two-thirds of mass shootings are either domestic violence incidents or perpetrated by shooters with a history of domestic violence. The Justice Department said it plans to appeal Thursday's ruling. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, at least two Republican lawmakers, including embattled New York Congressmember George Santos, have been spotted wearing AR-15 pins on their lapels. The Office of Florida Congressperson Anna Polina Luna said the shocking accessory is meant to promote a gun bill, though it's unclear what that bill is. And the Biden administration's released Guantanamo Bay detainee Maji Khan after nearly 20 years in custody. In 2021, Khan became the first Guantanamo prisoner to testify in an open court about torture methods used by the CIA at its network of secret black sites, where Khan was detained from 2003 to 2006. This is Bar Azmi, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, speaking to Democracy Now! then. Maji Khan, to his credit, 
uh, detailed the systematic, brutal, sadistic uh, torture of U.S. government officials, namely the CIA, uh, which for um, nearly 20 years the U.S. government has tried to keep secret. Khan's lawyer said in a statement, Guantanamo is a national shame. We hope that today is another step forward towards its ultimate closure. The men languishing in Guantanamo who have been cleared for release must be transferred. Indefinite detention is anathema to a just society, they said. Majid Khan arrived in Belize on Thursday, which has agreed to permanently resettle him. His release came as the United Nations announced it's sending a human rights official to the Guantanamo military prison for the first time ever. The U.S. continues to hold 30 four men at Guantanamo. Only 11 of them have been charged in military tribunals. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, College Board has removed Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations, and queer theory as required topics in the curriculum for its AP African American Studies course. We'll speak to two professors on the so-called cancel list whose work has been removed from the new required curriculum. Stay with us. And what did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crime, even if we make a mistake sometimes. That's what I learned in school today. Now.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the controversy surrounding the College Board's decision to revise its curriculum for an advanced placement African American studies course. The revised curriculum removes Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations, and queer theory as required topics. And it adds a section on black conservatism. Many prominent authors and academics have also been removed from the AP curriculum, including James Baldwin, Franz Fanon, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, June Jordan, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, Manning Marable, Tanahasi Coates, Michelle Alexander, Kimberly Crenshaw, Barbara Ransby, Roger Ferguson, and two of our guests today, E. Patrick Johnson and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. The new curriculum was released Wednesday on the first day of Black History Month. This all comes just weeks after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis threatened to ban the AP Black Studies course in Florida schools, and Florida's Education Department said the course, quote, lacks educational value. Florida had raised concern about six points in the curriculum, Black Queer Studies, Intersectionality, Movement for Black Lives, Black Feminist Literary Thought, the reparations movement, and black struggle in the 21st century. 
While several of those topics have been removed as required parts of the new AP curriculum, the College Board maintains the final decisions to revise the curriculum were made in December before Governor DeSantis said he was banning the class. UCLA professor Robin D.G. Kelly, whose writings were also removed from the required curriculum, said this is deeper than an AP course. This is about eliminating any discussion that might be critical of the United States of America, which is a dangerous thing for democracy, he said. We're joined now by a round table of guests, two of them are professors whose work has been removed from the required curriculum. In Greenville, South Carolina, E. Patrick Johnson joins us. He's dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University in Chicago and a pioneer in the formation of black sexuality studies as a field of scholarship. His most recent book is Honeypot, Black Southern Women Who Love Women. In Chicago, Kianda Yamada-Taylor joins us. She's professor of African-American studies at Northwestern University as well, a contributing writer at The New Yorker magazine and editor of the book, How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And Khalil Gibran Muhammad is with us, professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! And we're going to begin um, in South Carolina with Dean E. Patrick Johnson. You're one of the band. Um, can you respond to, this is a whole controversy. The College Board attacked the New York Times for saying that um, they removed these certain sections from the required AP course in response to Governor DeSantis. Um, they're not disputing the College Board that they removed these sections, but they're saying they did it before DeSantis made his final uh, comments on this issue. What is known is that the College Board made their, uh, revealed the curriculum on the first day of Black History Month. Talk about what's happening here. Well, there's so much to cover. You know, in response to the, the removal of my name, I it's a it's a great list to be on because of the wonderful thinkers that are included. And I also thought it was ironic that the fact that we've been removed means actually, uh, in some ways, more students will have access because now people are doing searches uh, for our work. Um, so that's the irony in all of this. I can't speak to the, the college board's um, motivations or uh, their their process, but what I can say is Everyone uh, is clear that African-American history is being, being used as a political pawn uh, for uh, the, the governor's own uh, ascension, uh, his own aspirations to become president. This is a movement to gin up his uh, supporters uh, and the, uh, the conservative movement. Um, and most of us, you know, realize this. And so I'm, I'm not uh, surprised by any of this, uh, but it just means that we have to, to be steadfast. We have to keep at it um, and make sure that uh, the students uh, who would have otherwise been able to, to access our work can still access it in many other ways. I wanted to turn to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, telling reporters why he opposed the original AP African-American Studies course. This course 
on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. So, uh, Dean Patrick Johnson, your response? Um Ron DeSantis has no standing about what should and should not be a part of African American history. He's not a scholar of African American history, and he himself is not African American. So why should he uh, have any role in what should and should not be included? And anything that, uh, if anything lacks, you know, educational value, it's the governor. I want to turn to your student, um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, as a graduate student, now also a professor, um, a professor now at uh, Northwestern University of African American Studies, one of the canceled as well. Professor um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, your response to this controversy and what students will learn all over this country, it's not just limited to Florida. There are laws being passed or being waived in many states around the country. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Um, I want to talk about that, but I want to begin with your question about the, uh, the college board um, and, and their motivations, because I think it is believable that uh, they had a piloted um, course that uh, was being circulated among many schools, dozens of schools, I think it's 60 schools uh, around the country. Um, I, it's totally believable that uh, through that process, they decided that um, things needed to be removed uh, from the course, that it needed to be revised in some way, that it needed to be uh, tightened up. That is the purpose of having a pilot in the first place. Um, but what is not believable is that the political atmosphere uh, had no bearing on their decisions about what to revise and the ways in which uh, they revised it. Um, and I say that because part of the, this has been, the development of this course uh, has been in process for a decade. However, uh, Trevor Packer, who is the uh, head of AP within the College Board, um, told Time Magazine last fall that the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd uh, reinvigorated his desire uh, to get this course uh, accomplished. And so it is hard to believe that given the circumstances around George Floyd and the historic uh, demonstrations that uh, came in the wake of that murder, um, the decision to excise any reference to contemporary black America, to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, is just uh, coincidence, is unbelievable. Um, and so the, the changes to the curriculum did not have to be uh, directly related to the words of Ron DeSantis. The political writing um, has been on the wall, uh, both in terms of the uh, unfounded attacks on critical race theory, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, derision of the 1619 project, 
which is where much of this uh, began, the, the, the 1619 project being banned in states across the country, the mere mention of critical race theory being banned uh, in states uh, uh, across the country. Um, and so at the college board, you only needed to be a thinking person uh, to realize that if we don't change significant parts of this uh, curriculum um, and weed out the radical writers, um, then you know we are probably asking uh, for uh, for for trouble. So their explanation that uh, this is just part of the process and uh, it has nothing to do with the political um, environment uh, is 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 completely unbelievable. Um, well, let me ask you to respond to David Coleman, the CEO of the College Board, defending their decision on CBS. We at the College Board don't really look to the statements of politicians, but we do look to the record of history. So when we revised the course, there were only two things we went to. We went to what Brandy described, which is feedback from teachers and students, as well as 300 professors who have been involved in building the course. And we went back to principals that have guided AP for a long time and served as well. Kiang, you might have tell her your response. Again, I do think that they were engaged in a, a process that went from a piloted uh, course uh, to a revised course. Um, but even looking at, at history, some of this is completely nonsensical. Uh, the fact that in the, the unit on um, civil rights and black power, uh, that they have reduced the black power movement um, to the life of, of Malcolm X, who was killed in 1965, before really the, the heyday of the black insurgency in the late 1960s took place. Um, and why is that important? Uh, because from 1963, really through 1968, in Elizabeth Hinton's book called America on Fire, which shows an even longer history of black rebellion and uprising uh, in the United States, is the context within which black studies was born. Black studies as, uh, as, as, a, uh, as an academic field, as a discipline, emerges out of the rebellions of the, of the 1960s. It is black students demanding that the, their lives, that their history, that a curriculum be developed around the uh, experiences of black people, around an understanding of racism in the United States, around an understanding of the kind of core hypocrisy of the United States, proclaiming itself to be a just democracy while treating black people, one, as slaves and then as second-class citizens. This is completely removed from the, the, the curriculum, so we don't even understand or know where the discipline of black studies comes from. And so that is also uh, a, a, political, uh, a political choice. And so I think that um, it's, it's just wrong to say uh, that politics had nothing uh, to do with it, when it's so evident based on the choices of what uh, remained and what was removed, uh, is so evidently um, shaped by the political atmosphere that we're in today. Um, I wanted to ask you about the Combahee River Collective, which remains in the curriculum, a manifesto of the black feminist group. Uh, you edited How We Get Free Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. Explain what it is and how it fits into this black studies course. The Combahee River uh, Collective itself was an organization of uh, black feminists, black lesbians that formed um, in the 1970s, and uh, three of the leading members of that organization um, put 
put together, wrote a, a manifesto, essentially, um, proclaiming uh, the meaning of, of black feminism for them, uh, which was really about looking at the ways that the experiences of black women um, had been uh, uh, minimized or marginalized uh, over the course of the, the radicalization uh, of the 1960s, which is to say that uh, for many, black politics was seen as a uh, male venture, as a, a set of politics and organizing that were oriented around the demands of black men. Um, and the, the emergent feminist movement was seen to have been dominated by white women. Uh, and so the Combahee River uh, Collective emerges to talk about uh, uh, really what are the experiences um, of black women. And they write this manifesto. Um, as a way to articulate the need for what they describe uh, as identity politics and not the, the, the kind of uh, identity politics that is, is uh, talked about today that is criticized uh, by the right and by liberals uh, uh, today as an exclusionary venture, but really as a way for uh, people who are oppressed and marginalized uh, to, uh, to have a way to talk about their own experiences, to build a political movement um, around what they need. Uh, because as Barbara Smith, one of the authors of the, the uh, statement said, if we can't fight for ourselves, then why would we expect anyone else to fight for us? In fact, we know no one else uh, will fight for us. So it's a very um, uh, critical and important statement uh, in uh, the canon um, of black feminist studies, but also in uh, the, the, the canon of, of black radicalism. I wanted to bring in um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Um, I wanted to start, though, with Fox News' Jesse Waters, um, who uh, said this on Fox News, criticizing the AP African American Studies course. It's a very good course. Three quarters of it is very very rigorous and very good. And this is very high level stuff. And then you get to about 1960 in here and it's all activism. It's all ideology. It's no history. A good course, a chunk of this is really good stuff. And then it goes into white supremacy, patriarchy, abolish the prisons, overthrow capitalism, and queer theory, intersectionality. And you're like, whoa, we were going pretty good here. And then boom, it hits you with all that stuff. And the lower third of this Fox News is war on woke, is what it says. Khalil Gibran Muhammad is professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Your response? Well, Here's the thing. Uh, we live in a country where the question of how we ought to make use of our resources, what kind of political structure we should have in order to decide on leadership, are all political questions. And we've been fighting a question about how to distribute those resources since the very beginning, since 1619, in the debate between indentured servitude and chattel slavery. So when uh, Fox News suggests that activism to advance a position of a more equitable, a more egalitarian economy, call it socialism if you'd like, or activism in pursuit of an actual multiracial democracy, call that woke if you like, um, is just another way of articulating the same thing the right does, which is to say that we should only be teaching capitalism, we should only be teaching individual freedom. It's absurd, but it's good propaganda. And so my job, uh, 
Professor Yamada Taylor's job and Professor E. Patrick Johnson's job and the 650 African-American studies faculty and their allies who have written a letter in protest to what is going on. It's our job to actually tell the fullest history and account of the country we actually live in from the past to the present. That's our job. And so it is the job of places like the College Board who purport to be in a position to develop curriculum to teach students based on what scholars and scholarship says. It's their job to push back against propaganda. And unfortunately, that's not what has happened here. Can you tell us, uh, Professor Muhammad, about what the College Board is? I mean, uh, the College Board makes the SATs and the PSATs. Increasingly, they're being made optional all over the country. People don't usually think of these. This is, I mean, it's a large corporation that makes a fortune off of this. But now that revenue is threatened. And they also then have these AP courses. Uh, And if they see that the political climate in this country is going to be banning courses, are they caving to this pressure for their own financial reasons? Again, we as scholars have to ask these questions. You as a journalist have to ask these questions. The College Board doesn't have to answer those questions. <laughs> they are an independent entity. Now, just a clarification, they are a 501c3, which means they are they're not a private corporation. They're a nonprofit. They get they get literally um, tax breaks for what they do. They generate a tremendous amount of revenue, a um, billion dollars, based on a year. Half, I'm sorry, a, a billion dollars a year. Yeah, half a million of that comes from the distribution of the AP system, and a, another portion of it comes from their SAT, and then they have these pipeline uh, programs. So it is a gigantic entity. The president of the College Board in 2020, according to the public 990, made $2.5 million as a CEO, David Coleman, which is twice the salary, that best I know, of the current Harvard president. So it is not an insignificant entity, and its concerns about its own well-being financially have to be considered in light of these controversies. And what about how this leads, not just the elite AP courses, but to what teachers when professors teach all over this country and their fears. For example, uh, in Manatee County, Florida, um, teachers have taken to covering up or removing books from their class libraries after a new law prohibiting classroom material that hasn't been vetted and approved by so-called certified media specialists went into effect. Teachers found in violation of these guidelines face felony charges, could go to prison, And so uh, not understanding what this is about, wouldn't there be massive self-censorship beforehand not to risk becoming uh, criminalized? Absolutely. This is why what Florida Governor DeSantis is doing is actually shaping national educational standards. This is no longer just about the Stop Woke Act that affects what happens in Florida or in the case where he has now taken over one of the colleges and and literally banned any notion of diversity and inclusion, which is now extending to the bureaucracies of the university. I mean, the notion of a chilling effect and self-censorship on what teachers think they might be able to teach is, is only now being tested. Florida is a laboratory of fascism at this point. Uh, I work at the Harvard Kennedy School, and we talk a lot about laboratories of democracy. We talk about city innovation. 
Well, Governor DeSantis is now ground zero for paving the way for the extension of the elimination of any notion that we live in an open society where we get to debate ideas freely. And I want to remind people that a, an AP course is designed to allow students to get college credit. When he and his minions say, well, this is about high school students, well, AP courses are really not about high school students. It's about them not having to read Kiyanga Yamada Taylor or E. Patrick Johnson in college because they've already read them in high school. So the impact on this is national in scope, and we have to consider that in light of DeSantis' own plans. Can you talk about the letter that you wrote along with 650 African-American department faculty members condemning efforts to critique and curtail this new AP course, the significance of this, Professor Muhammad? Sure. Well, I want to clarify, it's African-American studies faculty, and we are represented by Black people, white people, Latinx people, uh, Asian people, everybody. So everyone is included in that letter. What I want to say is we're running out of people in our field who can support this, including people in the letter who are listed in the AP curriculum for credit for participating in the process. It's becoming less tenable for the college board to claim that their 300 faculty have weighed in on this when this number keeps growing and some of the same people they cite as supporting it have signed this letter. Professor Yamada Taylor has already said strange credulity. I mean, we're beyond straining credulity. This doesn't add up numerically. Because what I am reading, when I'm reading the press reports, when I am reading the releases by the College Board, I'm seeing this gesture to this universe of people. But in fact, I'm learning that a small, much smaller number of players participate in the actual crafting of the curriculum. I'm not surprised that the College Board is using this as a communication strategy, rolling out people like my colleague Henry, Henry Louis Gates to stand in for what they've done. But Henry Louis Gates never appears in any credits in the original curriculum. He only magically appears later on and then as a spokesperson for this. So what our letter attempted to do was to say this, what is happening here and the College Board's apparent appeasement suggests to us that Ron DeSantis is now fundamentally attacking, attacking the most sacrosanct principles of an educational system, of an open society, and a frontal assault on academic freedom and democracy. And let's be clear, of course, he's not just Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's clearly a presidential aspirant and will shape the discourse um, in 2024 if, in fact, he runs. Um, but clearly thinking that his positions now, um, he is trying to shape them to appeal to the entire country. Which brings me back to E. Patrick Johnson, um, Dean Johnson, that's right, Dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University, pioneer in the formation of black sexuality studies as a field of scholarship. Can you share a message to future AP students? Can you talk about the focus of your work and why you think it's important for students to learn about black queer studies? Absolutely. You know, one of the things, going back to something that uh, Professor Taylor says, you know, 
the suggestion that uh, black history stops at, in 1963 or even 1968 is ludicrous. You know, one of the um, progenitors of what we now think of uh, as black queer studies is James Baldwin, who's one of the most important thinkers of the uh, 21st century. Um, to leave someone out of the history uh, of African-American history like James Baldwin is absurd um, because he was not only just a uh, a fiction writer, a nonfiction writer, he was an activist and he was also queer. And his thinking uh, has shaped, uh, along with many others, Audre Lorde, um, what we now think of as uh, black queer studies. And so you can't parse out uh, the, the intellectual uh, history of, of black studies uh, without these important thinkers. So that's why it's important for students uh, who are in high school to be exposed to these thinkers and also to, to understand the historical context out of which they emerge, even if they in their time weren't um, uh, using the language that we use now, i.e. queer, um, they, they were engaged in conversations and questions around sexuality as it pertains to black people. And sexuality as a question, as a, as a uh, mode of thought, also applies to the period of slavery and thereafter. So, I mean, as black people, we are sexual beings. And so that's why it's important to understand the role that sexuality plays in the history of black people. If you think about, for instance, uh, the institution of slavery and how uh, sexuality was vital to sustaining uh, that institution in terms of using black women's bodies uh, as breeders uh, or using black men's bodies as, as uh, breeders uh, to maintain slavery as an institution, it's ludicrous to think uh, or to say or espouse that sexuality is not important uh, when we talk about black history. And the other thing I'll say is um, this uh, culture war that we're experiencing now is not the same culture war that we're experiencing in the 1980s. And the difference is, is social media. Um, the, the youth and young people uh, today were born with the uh, access of the world in, in their pocket through a cell phone. So even if you take out uh, the Black Lives uh, Matter movement from this course, even if you take out uh, my work and uh, others' work, um, people ha can have access to it. Um, so we have to be steadfast. We have to uh, be uh, creative as we always have to make sure that our young people understand the, 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 the totality of black history, which includes the history of black sexuality. Um, uh, Kiangi Amato-Taylor, we're gonna end with you. Uh, February 1st was uh, a beginning and an end. Um, it's the beginning of Black History Month. It was the funeral of Tyree Nichols. Um, 
if you can wrap up this discussion by talking about what's happening today in this country, another attack on the AP curriculum is talking about police violence, um, and what people have to understand about where we stand today in this country. I think one of the reasons why the history I mean, and this is an African-American studies course, but why black history is, is so important uh, right now is because it speaks to uh, the longevity of both the uh, condition of, of, of black people in this country, one of oppression and marginalization, uh, but it also speaks to the longevity of political struggle. And that is part of what is so appalling, really, about the decision of the, the, the college board and caving in um, to the right wing on this, whether it was DeSantis or whether it was a general atmosphere, uh, which is to say that black people were brought to this country uh, as slaves. And then when slavery ended, there was another 100 years of legal subjugation. So it is entirely consistent that uh, the entirety of black letters would be consumed with questions of struggle, with questions of activism, with questions of, of, of politics. Um, but also as part of that uh, are questions about the American project itself, which is really what many of these people um, are, are afraid of. And without that history, we don't understand the intensity of the fury of protest at police brutality. We think that the demands to defund the police or the questioning about the American prison system or even the suggestion uh, that we don't have prisons, that we not have prisons, uh, is impetuous, just came up, uh, uh, is a recent phenomenon. No, this comes from a long history of police repression, a long history of uh, uh, judicial misconduct. And that is one of the reasons why this field of inquiry is so incredibly important. You cannot understand the link between uh, uh, crime and the black community unless you read Khalil Muhammad's book, Condemnation of Blackness, the best book ever written on the topic. You can't understand so much of black life today unless you engage with the field of, of, of African-American uh, history, which is why this is not just some isolated, isolated uh, uh, scholastic question, but that it has deep political uh, uh, implications. Black history is about understanding the contemporary moment, not just for black people, but for the nation uh, uh, as a whole. And that is why this is completely dangerous um, and why we have to resist these efforts to attenuate our understanding uh, uh, of this history instead of broadening it and deepening it. Iyengi Yamada-Taylor, we want to thank you for being with us. Professor of African-American Studies at Northwestern University. E. Patrick Johnson, Dean of the School of Communication at Northwestern University, and Khalil Gibran Mohammed, Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. We thank you all so much for this important discussion. Coming up, we speak to an asylum seeker here in New York who's just been evicted from a hotel where he was staying along with hundreds of other migrants. Now the city moving them to a remote terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Stay with us. Quelle heure est-il Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner.
Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger Écoutez et répétez. À midi. À midi. À midi. Democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show here in New York City, where police dismantled an encampment of asylum seekers outside Manhattan's Watson Hotel Wednesday night, threatening to arrest anyone who didn't leave. Video shows sanitation workers throwing suitcases into a dumpster as police surrounded the sidewalk. The asylum seekers, who were recently evicted from the hotel near Columbus Circle, were protesting the city's plan to house them in a thousand-bed facility in a remote terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. People staying at the facility told the group South Bronx Mutual Aid they have had to endure inhumane conditions, including extreme cold. At a press conference Wednesday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams questioned whether the asylum seekers camping on the sidewalk outside the Watson Hotel were actually migrants. And uh, I'm not even sure they are migrants. Uh, there are some agitators that are uh, just really, I think, is doing a disservice to the migrants and doing a disservice to the children and families who are moving into the hotel. Well, on Wednesday, before city officials cleared the encampment of asylum seekers, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to a Venezuelan asylum seeker named Ruben, who came into a television studio not far from the Watson Hotel to share his story. Juan interviewed Ruben in Spanish, and we've added voiceovers in English for both of them. Ruben was joined by Desiree Joy Frias, a community organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid, and I began by asking her to respond to Mayor Adams' remarks. That's correct. So those are the quotes uh, that they are paid actors, the migrants outside the Watson, and that the mutual aid organizers, collectives, neighbors that are dropping by with home-cooked food are, are outside agitators. We're um, New Yorkers. I'm born and raised here. I'm a child of migrants. Um, why do I do this work? Why do I step away from my three-year-old um, and my husband from my warm home to come out and do mutual aid work? Um, it's because the only people providing care to these people right now is community. Um, and will we continue to do it until we don't have to do that work anymore? Absolutely. But should we also have the, the, the preliminary budget 2024 that, that Eric Adams has put together adjusted so that it stops cutting funding to social services, to libraries, and stops funneling billions of dollars to the seventh largest army in the, in the world? Um, yeah, that would be really great because um, the problems of, of, of housing are, are systemic and are not going to be resolved by moving single men out, putting families into the Watson. The hotel was never the final solution. The final solution is permanent housing for all New Yorkers, stable housing, whether you're born here, whether you're not born here. There should never be a second class of humans that are put into a different style shelter just because they're single men. And I'd like to ask Ruben, could you tell us a bit about how long ago did you come from Venezuela to the United States? And a bit of the history of the trip, the journey is so many miles from South America to the United States. Well, yes, it's a bit 
complicated uh, the situation, not just most of us Venezuelans, but also people from many other parts of Latin America. It is a very heavy journey. Many don't come from Venezuela, but live in places that are even further away than Venezuela. Crossing through the Darien Gap is a very heavy experience. It, uh, I think, was useful for me. I think it made me a stronger person. But for others, sadly, many were unable to get out alive. Others are still in the Darien jungle, trying to resolve their situation, trying to figure out how to get out of there. And then one must cross through six seven more countries after coming out of the Darien jungle. Many people come without money, they go from bus to bus, others uh, walking, and it is a very heavy journey. And when did you come to New York? And have you been able to get work to support yourself? I have come to the United States about three months ago. I've been in New York for about two and a half months, I think. The truth is, it's been a bit difficult for me in terms of work. For thus far, I don't have a work permit. And it's very tough to get work here in New York without a work permit. And they will hire you for three hours. Or for two hours, for a short period of time, and they don't pay us all the same in terms of what they've paid me. Well, it's really not been enough for anything. I've not been able to get a stable job so far, which is what I want, which is what we all want, to get a stable job and be able to stay. But to get a job where we work for three days and then we're fired, and then where we work for five days and we get dismissed once again, and this because we don't have a work permit. Oh, Ruben, I wanted to ask how old you are. I'm 22 years old. And can you describe what happened on Sunday at the Watson? Tell us when you were evicted, what you were told. And then can you talk about the tour that the commissioner, New York City Commissioner Castro, took you and other asylum seekers on of this Brooklyn terminal facility where they want to put you now? Well, it was somewhat desperate news. They really should have given us more lead time for us to be able to get ourselves situated and to just know what that place is like so that each person would know what they would do, would have thought things through. But it was news that we got just one week ahead of time. And so for us, for many of us who don't have work, it gets complicated because we don't know or don't have anywhere to go, don't have money to rent a place. Others, the majority, have been able to get work in Manhattan. Now, sadly, they have to be transferred to Brooklyn. Many are going to have to give up their jobs. Many of us lost our jobs once again. We're in the street once again, starting from scratch. And uh, yesterday, uh, yes, I went with the commissioner, and he took us to Brooklyn, and we... He showed us around to show us how, how everything is, at this, what the situation is like there, what our decision was. And for my part, well, it's not 
noise porque so that we can't just sleep anywhere the only thing is we want to be treated like human beings a place where we can stay it doesn't matter if they put 20 of us or 30 of us there but so long as we can sleep comfortably not in the conditions that are in Brooklyn in the bathrooms are not in very good shape some of the bathrooms are on the in are inside others on the outside where the showers are he said he was going to put a soccer field uh, there it's uh, not that we uh, don't want recreation, but we've come to the United States to work. I want to ask you, the city says it's going to use the hotel for families instead of single men. Well, and obviously they're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people. More than 4,000 have come in the last year. How do you think that the city is responding to this crisis? On the one hand, we cannot demand anything because we've come here to work. We have to thank God and thank and thanks to the United States and to New Yorkers who are giving us their support and have given us the opportunity. In, however it might be, but have given us support in terms of being able to stay. People have offered food. Now, in terms of food, we really don't demand any big deal in terms of food, but if I'm going to give someone else food, then I need to make sure that that food is healthy, that's in proper condition. If it's not, then to avoid any problems, it might be best to just throw it out. In many, uh, this has happened in many cases, they really should have taken note of it. And as for the Watson, they just evicted uh, us because there were rooms there for two people. Now, for my own part, one sees there's the children and families coming in, but two men in one room, well, we were like families as well. We are human beings, and the fact that it's two of us men doesn't mean we can't be a family as well. We can be a family as well. And there were many uh, things that happened at the hotel, and everything was pretty much in peace. I don't know why they made this uh, decision to send us to that place at this time. They really should have sought another place. It doesn't matter in terms of the exact conditions, but somewhere at least where it wouldn't be so cold. They placed us by a lake during the cold part of the year. Part of our interview this week with Ruben, an asylum seeker evicted from a New York City hotel, and Desiree Joyfrias, a community organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid. To watch the full interview and to hear about Ruben's journey from Venezuela through one, two, three, four, five, six, perhaps seven countries before he made it to the U.S.-Mexico, uh, the border, and then made his way to New York, go to Democracy Now! Org. Oh, and a very happy birthday to Hugh Grant, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Geister, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afterina Nadurasena. I donate to Free Speech TV because I think it's important to have 
progressive voices and truthful voices on the air that are giving a, a, a view, a rounded view, and an accurate view of what's going on. Free speech um, was taken away from Albuquerque radio stations. Um, we don't really have any progressive voices anymore. Um, I have to pull them up on the internet to watch them. And so I thought it was important to keep these. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is called Economics for a New Year. It's my hope that we can talk about some of the urgent issues of our time in the hopes we can do better in 2023 than we were able to do in 2022. So we're going to talk a little bit about the connections between the Ukraine war, inflation, and interest rates, that coordinated set of urgent topics with some alternatives to what we are seeing now. I'm going to talk about a transportation system that is different from the one we have and based on different principles. I want to talk about a very important movement around the world called degrowth, this movement that takes account of the environmental crisis we face and talks about slowing or reversing growth as a way to respond and what that means. So let's jump right in. I'm going to start with the Ukraine war, inflation and rising interest rates. So let's begin very simply because the issues here are simple. The United States government is throwing $100 billion into the war in Ukraine, spending wild amounts of money, at least by comparison with every other kind of spending we have done in recent uh, history, even in, on warfare. This kind of explosion of extra spending, uh, all in this last 12 months, is inflationary. It means lots more money looking to buy things, and that typically pushes up prices. Now, of course, if this were paid for by taxes, if we tax the American businesses, the American people, then they would have less money to spend because we're taxing them, and then that money would be used for the war. So the extra spending on the Ukraine war would be offset by less spending by Americans. This, of course, would make the war very painful for Americans. And no political leader wants to do that for fear that it would undercut support for the war. So typically what happens is that money is printed to pay for the war. In other words, you use inflation to save yourself the political costs of taxation. But the problem is we already have a bad inflation and the spending on Ukraine would make the bad inflation worse. So we have the Federal Reserve, another part of our government, raising interest rates. And that works like a tax. But it's a tax on middle and low income people 
who can't afford to pay higher interest rates, and it's a tax on middle and small businesses who likewise can't pay higher interest for borrowing money. So if they're going to spend less, people are going to say, oh my goodness, look at what my credit card is costing me. Oh my goodness, look at what it costs me to borrow at the bank for my little business. So they won't borrow. They'll hold back. And then they won't have that money that they don't borrow to spend. So what's the bottom line? We are, in fact, limiting spending above all by middle and low income people because they can't afford to pay the inflated prices of goods and services. And by low and, and middle income businesses and individuals who can't borrow at higher interest rates. So what are we doing? We are financing the war in Iraq, excuse me, Ukraine, a hundred billion worth of government money, having less of an impact on inflation than it might otherwise by cutting back the spending of middle and low income people for goods and services and for borrowed money. You know, people used to say all wars raise the question, guns or butter? You're going to use your resources to kill people, or you're going to use your resources to sustain people. Kill foreigners, sustain your own people. We haven't escaped from that. We are, in fact, spending on guns and cutting back on the butter. Does that have to be? Absolutely not. I'm going to give you two alternatives that show how it could be done differently. Suppose the government had decided to do what Richard Nixon did in 1971, solve the inflation problem by imposing a wage price freeze. No business allowed to raise price, no workers allowed to raise wages. Wow. You know what you could have done then? You could have had a wage price freeze, taxed the richest amongst us, the biggest corporations, and used that money for the war in Ukraine, if that's what you wanted to do. That way, those who could afford it the most, the richest, the biggest, would pay for the war. It wouldn't be taken out of the hides of middle and low income people. And the richest in America have been growing their wealth faster than anybody else for the last 40 years, so it would make sense on the grounds of fairness as well. You could have done that, you might have done that, and we ought to think about doing that, rather than pretending that that option, that alternative, doesn't exist. Here's another one. You want to stop the inflation that hurts the mass of people? Because you know, middle and poor, that's the overwhelming majority of our people. You could have had ready rationing. You could have said that, for example, the basics of people's lives, the food you get in the grocery store, the gasoline for your car, you know, the basics, they could have been rationed. We could have distributed them according to people's needs. You're going to get a little ration card that says you're entitled to buy five quarts of milk a week because you have children. And if you're an elderly couple, you don't because you don't need the milk that, you know, rationing. We did that in the United States in the early 1940s. We know exactly how to do it. We did it very successfully back then. 
and it prevented an inflation then, and it could have prevented one now. You could then finance Ukraine, if that's what you want to do, without whacking the mass of people with an inflation, with rising interest rates, and all the rest. We ought to be discussing these alternatives. We ought to be facing them. We ought to be giving the democratic decision-making we supposedly have a chance to choose among them. We're doing none of those things. And we ought to face what that says about so-called democracy in the United States. I want to turn next to transportation, and particularly ground transportation. We have a problem in the United States that using the private automobile uses up more fuel than any other means of moving people around. You use more fuel for the automobile in this country than we use for airlines, for trains, for buses, for vans, for any kind of, here we go, mass transportation or collective transportation. Having each family or each person have their own car, which is, by the way, Sydney doing nothing most of the time, in a garage, on the street, wherever. That is a waste of resources and a waste of fuel, which means it pumps pollution into the air that hurts us, hurts our health. More people are injured and die from automobile accidents than almost anything else in our culture. It's extraordinary. We could have a first-rate public transportation system. Planes, trains, buses, vans, all the time, 24-7, clean, well-appointed, frequent. For those who still need a car, particularly in rural areas, we know how to do that because the rent-a-car business has taught us that. Places on the edges of cities and towns where cars are maintained by skilled mechanics and are available if and when you need a private car, you can go get one. It's there. The savings on injury, death, medical care, pollution, fuel, fossil fuel. I mean, we could be way ahead. The solution to our crazy, wasteful private car system isn't to go from fossil fuels to electric cars. We only are doing that because it allows the car companies to continue to have a profitable business, an electric car instead of a fossil fuel car. What we need is a change in the transportation system. And here's the solution. Guarantee everybody a job in our culture. We've long been able to do it. Do it. Everybody gets a job. Everybody gets an income. Workers don't have to worry. If we produce fewer cars, there's lots of other things we need done in this society. A job and an income is guaranteed. That would be a way to move forward in transportation. We're not doing that. We ought to. And then I want to get to this big issue. Many of you have written to me and asked me to talk about it. It's about degrowth. And let me explain what I mean. There is a tendency around the world, it's been going on for quite a while, 
to be critical of capitalism, but also of socialism. To put them both in the same bag and say, they're all about increasing production, giving people jobs, like I just spoke about. And then the argument is made, well, if you keep giving everybody a job, you're producing more and more, that's choking the earth. That's causing the using up of our resources. It's threatening our life on the planet. And going with that argument is another one, very closely associated. That is the notion we are all to blame. We are all buying too much stuff, collecting too much stuff in the garage, having our closets overfull of clothing. You know the argument. We are all part of the problem. We are consuming too much. We are buying too much. We are fetishizing the accumulation of goods and it's choking us literally in terms of the air we breathe, the water we depend on, the land itself. And so the argument goes, don't worry about this or that system. Let's appeal to people to cut back on consumption, to live more simply, to live with less, to focus on consuming less than we have. It's a kind of appeal to us all. We can all do our part. I want to respond to that. And I want to respond on two levels. I'll tell you what they are. And then I'm going to use the second half of today's program to make the argument in detail. First, there is, of course, some truth to this argument. We are, I would like to say, complicit. We have come to be complicit with this system that focuses so much on consumption, that trains us from the time we're children to think about the wonders of the mall and of all that you can buy in the mall and that measures one another's success in life by what we can buy and consume. Yeah, we are complicit. We have some responsibility. But I think it is a terrible misunderstanding and mistake not to ask, well, what is it we're complicit with? Why are we behaving in this way? I've come to the end of the first part of today's show, but please stay with us. When we come back, I'm going to try to explain why we behave that way, why we are complicit in a system of overconsumption. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. When we left off, I promised you that I would talk about the system we're complicit with. In other words, to explain some of the forces that make us complicit in a system that overconsumes and that is now threatening to literally destroy us as a civilization. And you won't be surprised to learn that there's a name for the system we're complicit with. 
for the system that produces our consumptive behavior that we want to change. And I think this is a way of understanding the degrowth movement that has a future. I'm going to begin by telling you the name of the system. It's capitalism. But there are things about capitalism that have built into them this fetishization of consumption, of overconsumptions, of consumerism, if you like. I'm going to start with some simple examples and then get a bit more complicated. The simple example used to have a name that people talked about was called planned obsolescence. Here's how it works. A company makes something, a capitalist enterprise. Let's say refrigerators, why not? And it makes a refrigerator, which is fundamentally a fairly simple machine, a motor, a condenser, a unit that cools, and then the space in which you keep your food at a cool temperature. It is possible and it has been for many, many years, to produce a refrigerator that lasts a lifetime. And even if it doesn't, that is easily replaceable with parts, if and when they wear out. But long ago, companies quickly understood that in capitalism, the way you succeed as a business the way you compete successfully against others if you sell more than they do. More units. The more you sell, the more profits you have. The more profits you have, the more you can invest in technology that saves you on labor or develop new gimmicks to put in the refrigerator to sell even more. In other words, the struggle of capitalism is a system that pits each producer against the other, puts a pressure on them to sell more. So guess what they did? There was a researcher 40, 50 years ago named Vance Packard who wrote books about all this. And they were very popular for a while. But then people stopped paying attention. But not because the argument wasn't valid and not because it doesn't continue. It was... And it does. Here's a simple story. You make the machine to wear out much sooner than it needs to. So it has to be replaced sooner than it needs to. That may be a waste of resources, but it's profitable. The company that can get you to buy more because what it sold you didn't last as long as it might have, is the successful profiteering company. Pretty soon other companies who might have tried to produce the longer landing, lasting machine discover that they can't compete. The company with planned obsolescence also has a little something new each time. Instead of a white refrigerator, how about one that's an avocado color or a stainless steel one? or one that has a built-in radio. You get the picture, you produce in order to sell. That's the capitalist way. You don't produce so it lasts forever. That is not the way the system works. That's why we have fashion 
That's why everything imaginable that's made finds the company making them advertising the new and better version of it. Maybe better, maybe new. The point is, sell more. If there's going to be selling more, then there has to be, ready, the next quality of capitalism, advertising. We've never seen advertising in slavery or in feudalism on the scale we see in capitalism. Advertising assaults you from every corner, every radio program, every television program, every billboard, everything you look at in the course of the day or listen to is full of advertisements. And advertising is a highly developed operation, utilizing the latest research in psychology and in mental health and mental processes. Long ago, capitalists learned to associate in your mind through the images and pictures they present. The notion that the needs you have, some of your deepest needs for love, for admiration, for appreciation, for good relationships with other people, can be met by buying this or buying that. The whole idea that you should buy your way to personal growth, you should buy your way to happiness, this is all a part of capitalism. That didn't drop out of the sky under some other economic system. Capitalism needs to keep selling. Every capitalist nightmare is to produce stuff in the factory and then be unable to sell it. And you hire advertisers to go out there and make sure that all you've been able to produce will be purchased by someone because otherwise you die. Which means that the people that we speak to are people who have been and are being bombarded all day every day. Buy this, buy this, buy that. You're not popular, buy this, you will be. You're not loved, buy this, you will be. You're not happy, buy this, you will be. Endlessly over and over. Yeah, you can blame people for being complicit. You can blame them for going out and filling their medicine chest with creams that are supposed to transform their sex life. But blaming the people is a little bit of blaming the victim. Now, let me take that back. It's a lot of blaming the victim. Why are we putting people under such pressure? Why isn't the system one that produces goods that last a long time? Yeah, they may not be the latest. They may not have all the bells and whistles. But if people were not wasting their time and energy and their money on accumulating more goods than they know what to do with, which is the situation for millions of us. We might be a lot happier society. We've been a society producing like you never saw, but unhappy, lonely, and now worried that we're destroying the planet we depend on. Aren't these enough reasons to begin to say, let's change a system that makes people complicit with overconsumption? They didn't. They weren't born that way. Now here's another one. Capitalism is a system that produces inequality. You know that. For the last 40 years, every statistic, 
whether collected by a left-winger or a right-winger or someone in the center, demonstrates that the gap between rich and poor has gotten much worse. We now have people, the Jeffrey Bezos, the Elon Musks, who count their wealth in hundreds of billions of dollars. You have to go back to ancient Egypt, pharaohs, to get levels of wealth like this. And of course, they show you their wealth in their 500-foot yachts and their private airplanes and their, and you know what that does? That creates in the minds of millions of other people envy. It's a standard. It becomes a measure of how hard you work, how well you work, how successful you have been, how sharp and smart you might be. And all of those get shown by the level of consumption. You have the biggest mansions. You have more of them. The biggest boats. The biggest, you name it. And of course, for the mass of other people, this becomes a standard of emulation. A sta- I, want to, I want that too, or at least to get closer to it. You know, the psychologists teach us that Americans are very lonely people. What they really need and want are relationships. They need the time to relate to their families more, to their friends more. They need relief from the consumption for the other things in life that matter more. Many of our religious leaders, they grasp that also and talk about it. But you know, telling people to be more focused on their family is not going to cut it. It hasn't. And telling people not to be complicit with consumerism is not going to work real well either. And it hasn't. You know why? It's not that it's wrong. We are complicit. We're complicit with the capitalism into which we were born, in which we rose up and developed our ways of thinking. You can appeal to us to change But it's a bit cruel to appeal to us to change when you haven't changed the system that makes us the way we are. That's not fair. And it doesn't work. That's why folks like us focus on capitalism. Change the system. Mm -hmm. Let's not have a system based on profit. Let's have a system that directly says, If what people need are basically supports a sufficient standard of life, the freedom to develop their relationships, their love relationships, their creativity, their leisure, their artistic capabilities, then let's create a system that they can become complicit with doing what they need rather than a system that demands of them complicity with consumption. Here's a final way to put it. In economics, the field that I'm a professor of, I remember early on in my career noticing something bizarre, that in all the textbooks I was taught with and the textbooks I used to teach, labor, the activity of work, is considered to be negative. Mm. In the language of economics, it's a disutility. 
Labor is something you don't want to do. Mm. Well, then why does labor happen? Why do people work? Answer, so they can consume. Mm. Notice the story. You endure labor, a bad thing, to get the good thing, Mm. consumption. (laughs) That's what teach people. But of course, that's not necessarily true. If the workplace were made a place of beauty, Mm-hmm. A place where you have lots of time to interact with your fellow workers, where relationships are built and nurtured and celebrated. You'd love to go to work. There's no reason that your joys, your needs are not met at work. What a crazy idea to say work is awful. Don't expect anything from it. You know what the compensation is for work? It's what we teach in economics. Consumption. You get to go after work to the mall. And there you're supposed to fill yourself up with goods and services to compensate you for the unpleasantness of work. That's how we teach people. And you know that's a reflection of what work often is. Drudgery, doing what other people tell you, no time for yourself, for your thought, barely enough to go to the bathroom. We make work awful in order to persuade the people that consumption is how you offset the burden of work. What a way to organize a society. Far better. Forget the consumption. Minimize it to what we need. Let's make the work, which is where we spend most of the hours, a five out of seven days a week. Let's make that a joy. Let's make that a satisfaction. That would be a change system, and we could then be complicit no longer with excess consumption. Thank you for your attention. I hope you found this work interesting. And I look forward, as always, to speaking with you again next week. teachers who allegedly violate Iowa's law against teachers. Republican lawmakers in Iowa have introduced a bill that would allow students and parents to report teachers who allegedly violate Iowa's law against teaching, quote, divisive concepts like that the U.S. is fundamentally or systematically racist or sexist. This new bill would require the state to investigate every complaint and fine school districts found to have violated the 2021 law. It's clearly modeled after Florida's Stop the Woke Act, which allows parents to sue teachers and school districts that violate it. As day by day around the country, we're seeing right-wing conservative lawmakers pass laws that severely limit what school children can learn about a variety of topics, but specifically about race in America. Move. The new Arkansas governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, made one of her first official acts after taking office last month, signing an executive order to, quote, prohibit indoctrination and critical race theory in our schools. It's incredibly important that we do things to protect the students in our state. We have to make sure that we are not indoctrinating our kids and that these policies and these ideas never see the light of day. These ideas never see the light of day. Kind of give away the game there. 
One of the real goals is to make sure that ideas and research about the history of slavery and racism and Jim Crow in our country, quote, never see the light of day. And all this has a real impact on what students in public schools and colleges are able to learn. To take just one example, the only black sociology professor at the largest public university in the state of Florida, Jonathan Cox, who I talked to recently on my podcast, Why Is This Happening?, dropped two classes on race last fall that he had been offering because of Governor Ron DeSantis' stop woke law. Even in states that aren't laying down edicts about teaching about race, local school boards are pursuing that agenda, like in Woodland Park, Colorado, where a school board member grilled a high school teacher about one of the texts taught in a history elective. The course has been taught since 2015, after the school decided students needed to read more nonfiction to boost their performance on the SAT. In his 2015 book, Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates writes, among other things, quote, The power of domination and exclusion is central to the belief in being white, and without it, white people would cease to exist. My question to you, do you agree with this teaching? Would it be appropriate or even lawful to teach a child to view a person as inherently bad or dangerous simply because of the color of their skin. Now, the teacher kind of struggled to answer. You can understand why in that environment you would. The quote was obviously taken completely out of context, but the book it came from, Between the World and Me, wasn't just some, like, you know, screen that got passed around. The book is one of the most successful pieces of nonfiction in America in the last decade, if not more. It won the National Book Award, Pulitzer finalist, the author, Ta-Nehisi Coates won a MacArthur Genius Award. He's correctly considered one of the best, if not the best, nonfiction writers of his generation. And his book is now part of the American canon, rightly. He is also, like all good writers, like all truly great writers, a provocative one. A kind of searing and provocative writer that right-wing politicians want to protect students from because they don't want their ideas to see the light of day. Ta-Nehisi Coates will join me with his response to that school board member next. You can't always avoid migraine trigger. Hold on, everybody. Hold on. Just got to jump here. Florida is, well, would like to think of itself, I think, as leading the charge and restricting the teaching of materials in schools that make MAGA Governor Ron DeSantis feel uncomfortable. That crusade is being championed all across the country and other states as well. As we showed you, one school board in Colorado has a big problem with author and journalist Tom Hossie Coates reading a book from one of his quotes from one of his books at a meeting stripped of context as a sort of condemnation of critical examinations of race in America. So I would like to bring in the author himself, Tom Hossie Coates, winner of the National Book Award, MacArthur Fellowship, author of several best-selling books, including the one in question, Between the World and Me. Good to have you here. Thank you, and thank you for that introduction. Well, that was really kind. Uh, it was all true. Um, wh- what do you think, what goes through your head when you see like this star chamber type interrogation of your text and a teacher before a school board having to defend a single quote from Um I thank God that the guy asking the question isn't a teacher. <laughs> um, and you look, you can pull a sentence out of any text and say, you know, what, what, what do you think of this? You know, um, obviously, you know, one of the big arguments in between the world and me is that race is a social fiction. So when we say white people will cease to exist, the idea is the category will too. And racially, the hope would be that black people would too. 
You know what I mean? Which is, you know, the case that the story makes. It does not mean that white people will be physically eradicated from the face of the earth. But, you know, if somebody wants to do that, they can do it. Well, and it also, I mean, the other thing that it strikes me about quote and about the way that you write about race, uh, both in Between the World and Me and, and in your novel, uh, there's a phrase you use, people that think they're white or believe that they're white, that it is a belief. It is a belief system. It is a, it is a social construct and is a way of people constructing a social reality together that is imbued with history and material consequences. But fundamentally, it isn't actually a biological reality. Yeah, and, and that's the argument that's being made. Um, and actually, I think the elements of that belief system can be seen in this slate of laws. Take, for example, this notion that um, students should not be uh, uh, um, exposed to anything that makes them feel uncomfortable, discomfort, or any sense of, this is my favorite, personal responsibility uh, for anything that's ever happened in history. Anybody that's ever you know, studied history in any sort of serious way knows that you feel a range of emotions. And 70% of the time, those emotions are not positive, you know, emotions that make you feel good about the world. The goal of education isn't, you know, to uh, tell you that, you know, the world is, is sunshine and rainbows. The goal is enlightenment. The goal is some deeper understanding of humanity. And that's what, you know, you, you, you hopefully are trying to get across uh, to students. This is what's so perverse, right? Because it has, this entire backlash was shepherded in under the cover of critical thinking and the left is sort of trying to indoctrinate people. And I want to just play you this little clip from Jonathan Cox, who's a sociologist I spoke to, who I was really just impressed with, who he was talking about what he's trying to do in the classroom, right? Like with these two classes on race that he had to cancel because of this law. Take a listen. I try to bring in lots of different perspectives and encourage students to do so. So, I mean, like, for example, we talk about something like cultural appropriation. I might present one article, you know, that talks about it and saying, like, this is what it is. Here's why it's really negative. And another article that presents a completely different view. And then we'll talk about it in class so that students, you know, I don't want them to just uh, swallow stuff and actually tell them all the time. Right? Like, don't take what I'm saying just to be the, the, the pure 100% truth, right? Like, go out and do some research on your own. I want you to be critical thinkers. Um, so I really try to actively fight against that caricature that you kind of expressed about what people think of in my classroom. And I also don't go in leading with my opinions. I very rarely, almost never share my own opinion, right? I'm much more interested in the thoughts and ideas that students are bringing with them. I mean, that's a guy who's not going to, who's not, te- didn't teach, right? Two courses at the largest right. state school in Florida right. because of the DeSantis law. Right, right, right. You know, the fascinating part of me is, was it only two years ago that there was this notion that kids on campus were too soft and, <laughs> you know what I mean, needed to be coddled and, and you know, this, that, that. And now we have literal laws saying that. We have actual laws, not, you know, beliefs, not ideas, but actual on the books laws saying that, you know, our students, you know, in the most recent case, in an AP class of all places, you know, are somehow too sensitive to be exposed to ideas that, you know, give them a sad. You know, it, 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 it is, you know, utter, utterly ridiculous. And it's, it's so clearly not education. The point of it is not education. I'm a teacher, too. I teach down at, at Howard University. Um, I expose my kids to all sorts of things from all sorts of perspectives that I do not hold myself. There is no way in the world I could be a black writer and say, I will never read anybody that's racist. I'll never read anybody that's sexist. It just, it just, you, you couldn't live. You couldn't practice your craft if you were like that, you know? I mean, the irony is like you and I have, there are people, I'm not going to name them, who like, you and I have talked about like writers we like or don't like, yeah. writers who like, whose politics we don't like, but you're like, yo, that guy can write. That's a craft. And you have to do that. Like you, you have to, you know, and, and even if you completely disagree with the person, how will you know what you disagree with if you don't read them? 
You don't read them seriously. How do you know? The thing, and then the one layer deeper than that that I find, and I don't know if people have looked at this, but I, I spent some time on this, like this stuff, the, the Florida law. It's not just that, you know, there's the education aspect to it, but there's also a degree to which it is essentially stipulating a civic creed officially for the state of Florida that is an ideology. And so here's like an example. This is a thing that you can't teach in Florida under Florida law now, although the law is currently enjoined. Such virtues as merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblindness are racist or sexist, or were created by members of a particular race, color, sex, or national origin to oppress members of another race, color, sex, or national origin. Now, you may or may not agree with that as a thesis, right. but that is now the official state creed. Right. Oh, Florida, right. you can't say that racial colorblindness was invented as a means of furthering racial oppression. Right. Yeah, I, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I really, honestly, you know, when I read that, it sounds like somebody else who was an activist wrote that and fed it to the legislatures. It's so weirdly specific. Great, you almost yeah, can great. detect the hand of somebody else there working, you know, um, no need to name names, but um it, it's absurd. It's absurd. And it's, you know, just another highlight for why people like that, you know, shouldn't be involved in the kind of decisions that are made in the classroom. Just step back for a second. Where do you, you know, you wrote this, when I writing this really good piece, The Atlantic, about Trump, where you call him the first white president, sort of some, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but making the point about, again, how whiteness is constructed. That's that the point. Only in relation to the backlash against that was the, point. the first black president, could there be a white president in the way that we understand whiteness, right? It's in right. contrast. Right. We had this moment in 2020 amidst the pandemic and George Floyd's death in the aftermath and these historic, by all metrics, I mean, just people counting in the streets, like maybe the largest civil rights protest we've ever had in this country. This incredibly strong backlash against it playing out in places like this. And now here we sit in 2023, just a few weeks after the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of Memphis police. And where do you see things in this kind of push and pull? Um, I believe it, I'm not excited. And here's why. Uh, the history of this country in terms of these backlashes is that they generally come and are generally the most ferocious when um, the forces that would like to maintain the status quo are most afraid. You, you can't understand uh, redemption without understanding reconstruction and without understanding reconstruction as an actual threat. Uh, you can't understand the, black, the backlash that came after the civil rights movement without understanding how much certain people perceive the civil rights movement as an existential threat. And I think it's the same thing here. You, you, you gotta you know, take a second and you know, uh, step back. If you look at uh, uh, the culture and you look at who's present and you look at who has the authority, you know, like, uh, you know, I hate to you know, come close to home, but you look at like, say a movie like Wakanda Forever that is on the verge of making a billion dollars. This matters because people look around and they see who is holding. It's the same thing for Barack Obama. The idea that the uh, equivalent of American royalty was held by somebody who only generations ago, their very conception would have been illegal. This, you know, this disrupts the conception of what America is and it frightens people. And so you get backlash. You know what I mean? And so I actually take it as a sign of strength. You know what I mean? For where the movement is right now. But we always knew this was going to happen. I mean, the expectation that, you know, the war would just be won and I would be it, you know, uh, it just, you know, was always fence. Yeah. And sometimes those, I mean, those backlashes can be dangerous too. They definitely and, can. And, and I don't want to diminish that. Right. Yeah. I'm not diminishing that at all. And, and I think, you know, we, you're seeing it, um, you're seeing it in schools, you're seeing it um, in, in certain ways in which like criminal justice laws, right. backlash right. against 
bail reform, all these different places where progress is made. You can see the backlash politics being marshaled. And I just think that's because the idea is sticking. Like, how does the 1619 Project end up in an executive order? Like, think about that. Like, what piece of journalism can you remember ending up in an executive order? I mean, no piece of journalism I've ever produced has any... Me either, brother. Has any president ever cared that much about one way or the other? Me either. And so what that means is people are afraid. Right. That means something is, is, is sticking in their minds. They're actually using the levers of the state. It doesn't mean it's not dangerous. I want right. to really be right. clear right. about that. But it's also a statement of how threatened they feel and, you know, the, the effect that some of this work is having. You know, it's interesting you say that because I do think, like, I am I'm constantly trying to keep these two tracks in my head of the material and the ideological. Yeah. So it's like... There is so much force and, and, and momentum behind these new, these ideas. They're not new ideas. They're old ideas about racial equality, about deconstructing whiteness, about taking apart. And then I look at the material and it's yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. what's the racial wealth gap? That's a great point. What, great what's point. happening? Yes. Yes. It, have we closed the life expectancy right. gap between black and white people? Right. We have not. Is it saying the same? It, it is. is not. And I, I'm always wrestling in my head, like, what? those two things because it does feel like the ideas are having ascendancy and they do have a force and they are scared because they are right and then you look at the material aspect and it's like it feels like a less encouraging i I think though those on the other side understand that one undergirds the other that if uh in ideas of of white supremacy become less uh uh ingrained in the body politic then when folks look around at the jail system maybe they actually really do start asking questions when folks look around at who's poor and who's not, maybe they really do start asking questions in a way that they didn't before. Um, I think of it like the foundation of a building. You can chip away, chip away, chip away, and you can see progress, you know what I mean, in the chipping away, but the building might still be there. You know what I mean? And so it is that the artifice of white supremacy still is there, even as the foundation, you know, is, is, is being chipped away. Do you think, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that, that the, the, the peak of racial polarization in American politics happens under Barack Obama in, in recent times, right, just in terms of sorting, that it starts to depolarize along lines of race um, as you get further away from Barack Obama. People have made this argument, whether it's true or not, I, I sort of think the data is a little unclear. Mm-hmm. But do you think the post-Trump era that those lines remain as hard as ever? I don't know. I don't know. It's a difficult question for me to understand because I have difficulty with that analysis. I think white people were certainly more frightened under Barack Obama yeah. or a certain type of or a critical mass or a certain kind of white person was certainly much more frightened and much more politically active. I think that's definitely true. Um, but the vocabulary of racial polarization causes the idea that somehow things were more separated. And I think from a black perspective, we would find that hard to, you know. To Grok under Barack Obama. I don't right. Yes, like if you look at white, like I certainly did not feel any more distance. I mean, I think we always felt distance. You know, did we feel more distance under under Barack Obama from a black person? I don't know that we did. No, you know, you can make an argument. There was more proximity. I agree. I agree, and I think that was part of the problem. I think that right there was exactly part of the problem. And that was that was the source of the. Yeah, I think like like to the extent like I wish we could come up with another term besides polarization. Yeah, yes. but let's just say I I prefer the term fear. So let's just say for a certain sector of white America being afraid, I think that proximity was a problem. And this goes back to what we were talking about before. I actually think the symbolism of it was a problem, which is not the material. You're correct about that. You know what I mean? But I think the symbolism of it still threatens people because they correctly identify that it's a symbolism that undergirds all of them. You know, there's a reason why, you know, folks came up with ideologies to justify slavery. I was thinking about the symbolism today with Ilhan Omar. I mean, 
when you talk about soft power, which is just a nice sort of like polarization, it's kind of like a, it's not my favorite term, but you know, what people think about America. And it, it's so wild to me, the cultural supernova nuclear fusion that is America. Yeah. You go in around the world and like you hear American pop songs mm-hmm. and you see American movie stars and American shows. Much of which, a, a disproportionate amount of which is generated by black people, right? So, like, African Americans generate a crazy pie chart of, like, what is global pop culture. But to have Ilhan Omar as this symbol of, like, here's a woman who came to the U.S. as a refugee fleeing war, black Muslim woman, she wears a job, who's a member of the U.S. Congress, and, like, what that means symbolically, and then to sanction her. And what that means about it. Yeah, I don't think that's a mistake. Right. You know, um, we, we were talking earlier about, um, uh, you know, performance. What, what, one thing that I think about, you told me this years ago, and I don't know if you remember this, but you say, what you often say to people who say voting doesn't matter, is that if you look at wealthy people, they have some of the highest voting they all vote. So if it doesn't matter, why are they, why are all these <laughs> voting? All voting? Go look at the voting, you know, go around Palm Springs and see what the you know, voting, they're voting. And I feel the same way about this conversation about symbolism, right? Why yes. do the people with power care about it so much? If it has no power, if it's ultimately irrelevant, why are they so focused on it? You know what I mean? Are they making some sort of tactical error? Are they, you know what I mean, foolish and, you know what I mean, not paying attention to the right thing? Or do they understand that this is the thing that actually undergirds much of the material power that they enjoy in the first place. What are you working on these days? <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> you don't have to tell me. I'm working on Superman. You're working on Superman. I'm working on Superman. I'm working on Superman. That's why like, nobody sees me. I'm working. It's called Superman. So, I mean, you can imagine how, how, how big of a job that is. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's the ultimate symbol, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on, I'm working on Superman. I'm trying not to say anything else, but yes. Where do you see, I guess, the, 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 this question of sort of this back and forth, like the force of these ideas, like I've been really stuck. I, I felt a little, I mean, after Tyree Nichols' death, I just yeah, keep, man. I keep running for this. Thing you, of, you watched the whole video, didn't you? had to do your job, right? Yeah, we did. Although we told people on the staff that you don't have to. Yeah. Um, yeah um, it's it's yeah. just incredibly upsetting. But the thing that I keep coming back to, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, is like, I feel this feeling of like, okay, if you make me the king of Memphis for a day or the head of the police department or I have a magic wand, like, you know, solve it. And it's like there are certain problems in American life where I feel like I got a beat on that. Mm-hmm. And then that one, I feel like there are times where I did. Mm-hmm. But now if you said, okay, here's the magic wand, go fix it. You know what I think the tough thing is? It is if crime rates go up, the answer is we need more cops and we need to put people in jail. If crime rates go down, that's because we have a ton of cops yes. and we have a lot of people in jail. And, you know, the, the answer the, the, it's a one-way rack. It's always, always the stick. It's always a stick. And it's really, really, I mean, this is like, you know, you talk about things that make, make you pessimistic. When I look at the entire edifice of criminal justice in this country, I mean, we really did something. We really, really did something that's going to be really, really hard to online. Although, to go back to your point before, there really has been some progress in a one. Oh, tell me something good. I'd love there, it. I mean, there has been reduction in incarceration rates. There's yes, a bail reform that has worked in a lot of places. That's true. Um, but it is under assault. Ta-Nehisi Coates, what a great pleasure to have you. Hey, man, thank you for having me. Thank you again for that introduction, of course. We'll be right back. Okay. I'm so glad to have been having the moments. Now something Rama found we're going to play right now. Tell everybody, Rama. 
This is Bruce Lipton, How to Create Heaven on Earth, How to Reprogram Your Mind. On YouTube. 15, right? 15 minutes. Yeah. Here we go. If you have a good life and you die, you get a chance to go to heaven, which is what? the cre- Heaven is anybody's individual thing. I talk to you, you give me your definition of heaven, you listen to my definition, you listen to somebody else, they're all different. We all have creative vision. So heaven is a creative place. And I go, so what's relevant? I go, once I started to understand this stuff, first of all, I never believed in spirituality, but the science revealed using quantum physics and epigenetics that we are a field, an energy field playing through this body. What I learned through this is, first of all, there's no such thing as death of who we are. There's death of the body, but the body is like a virtual reality soup that an energy field that is different for each one of us is operating in this body. My uh, self receptors on my cells, which distinguish me as being different from you, respond to a different environmental signal than your self receptor. So each of us is receiving like a broadcast that is running this biology. Consciousness is running the biology. Consciousness. Do mushrooms freak you out? These won't. But it's no wonder shrooms get a bad rap. Word has. Consciousness isn't physical, it's an energy. And I go, why is it relevant? Because the answer was this. The belief that if you do really well and you you know persevere, and when you die, you're gonna go to this place called heaven. And I go, consider this, that we were born into heaven, that we came here to create. That's what we're doing, we're creating. And I say, when we're creating it right, heaven on earth is here. When we're creating it wrong, struggle is here. And all of a sudden I say, oh my God, don't wait till you die that you're gonna to go to heaven. You are, this is it. This is where you came to create. What do you wanna create? Love? Coronavirus? You can create any damn thing you want. This is creation place. But if you don't know that your creations are being controlled, then we become a victim of a world out of control. And yet we were the creators. We gave in to other people's beliefs. And then we now are creating not with our wishes and desires, we're creating with the program. Where's the program taking us right now? And the answer is fear, shutdown, loss of community, breakdown of the system. I go, we can learn or not. That's it. And this is a learning moment. Take your power back. You are beyond, uh, power-wise, beyond any virus that ever existed. You are very powerful. Every human, and this is a fact, every human first seven years is, uh, is download a hypnosis. The brain of a, a child under seven is in a lower vibrational frequency. When you put wires on a, a person's head, you read electroencephalograph, reading brain activity. 
A child below seven has a lower vibration than consciousness. It's called theta. Theta is imagination. Oh, that's how kids play a, a tea party with mud pies. But to them, it's a real thing. A kid rides a broom. It's a horse. It's That's theta, imagination. <laughs> theta is also hypnosis. And the idea is this. Before you can become conscious, if you don't have any programs, what are you going to be conscious of? So nature makes the first seven years. How? What kind of programs are required to live on this planet? I say, how do you get them? Theta is hypnosis. You just watch. You watch your parents, you watch your siblings and your community because you have to learn how many hundred thousand rules. Think about it. Just to be a functional member of a family and a functional member of a community, there are rules. I teach an infant these rules. It's like, oh, you don't have to. First seven years, they just they observe it and just download it. Look, this is not new. I mean, there's a famous book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And basically said, you come from a poor family and you could struggle your whole life and try to get rich, but you're not going to make it. And if you come from a rich family, you could be stupid your whole life and make it. Not because it was thinking, but it was unconscious behavior that was downloaded from rich families into kids, uh, which is unconscious. So they're they're making the right moves unconsciously. If they engage their conscious mind, then they look stupid, but it's unconscious. And that's the same thing with poor people. Poor people have beliefs from the family Oh, you can't make it. Life's a struggle. Things are hard. Who do you think you are? And if that's the program you get, then 95% of the day, you will sabotage yourself. And that's why poor people stay poor and rich people stay rich because the programming. 95% of our life, it's a fact, comes from those programs in the subconscious. Every day, only about 5% of the life are you using conscious, which is creative. 5%. So your life is being lived even though you think you're living your life. Exactly, and you don't see it because it's called subconscious, below conscious. And the Jesuits, for 400 years, they were boasting. People didn't understand. They say, give me a child until it's seven and I will show you the man. They've been saying that for 400 years because they knew seven years was the program period. And 95% of your life after that will be whatever that program is. Your life is a printout of your subconscious behavior. Oh, so... You don't have to try and think about what happened. I just say, look at your life. The things you like that come into your life come in because you have a program that supports that. But anything you struggle with, work hard at, put a lot of effort into making it happen while you're working so hard, inevitably, you have a program that doesn't support that conclusion and you're trying to override the program. So uh, you don't need to do a lot of strength and psychology stuff. You just look at your life and say, where am I struggling? Because wherever you're struggling, inevitably is a program in your subconscious that does not support that destination you've been looking for. The conscious mind uh, is creative and can learn in any number of ways. Read a self-help book, go to a lecture, listen to this program, and conscious mind's gonna get some awareness. And I go, yeah, but subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. I go, right, it doesn't. Subconscious mind learns in two fundamental ways, naturally. Hypnosis, which is the first seven years. And after age seven, how do you put new programs in? Repetition practice. You want to drive a car? You didn't learn learn how by just getting in the seat and put the key in. You had to practice driving the car. You want to learn uh, the alphabet. How many times did you go from A to Z, uh, you know, try to go to A to Z before you can complete it? Once you completed it, you didn't have to go back and do it again. So two phases. You want to train the subconscious mind? Hypnosis? Uh, Repetition. uh, I like the last one because there's a new phrase that's bandied about called fake it till you make it. Mm. Meaning if you're not a happy person, I say you want to be a happy person, then repeat all the time. I'm happy. I'm happy. I say, 
well, you don't look happy or anything. He said, no, I, who am I talking to? By repetition, I'm talking to subconscious. If subconscious gets, I am happy and not. Hold on, everybody. And 95% of your life comes from that subconscious. There will be a point once the subconscious got, I am happy, you don't have to say it again. Okay. It'll be automatic. And that's point. why we pe see people do affirmations and gratitude journals and stuff, because if you do that daily. It's repetitive. And that's, the, that's the secret part. Look, putting a sticky note on the refrigerator is more like a suggestion but it's not a repetition. So it doesn't work very well. But you have to do, repetition is a, it's a habit. It's making habit. So you gotta do something religiously in the sense of repeating it, repeating it, repeating it to make it work. Uh, if you don't like the program, you don't like the way it's turning out, well then you can reprogram it. And you could get the things you want. The movie, The Matrix is not science fiction. It's a documentary. This is the whole story of the Matrix. Matrix, uh, you've been programmed? Oh, we can take a red pill and get out of the program, okay? Falling in love is the equivalent of taking the red pill biologically. Scientists have studied what is called mind wandering. I said, what is mind wandering? I said, well, your conscious mind could be focused on a task or your conscious mind could go off into a, you know, think about things, okay? Uh, and, and the relevance about that is when the conscious mind is staying in the front, you're in absolute control, wishes, desires, what you want, conscious mind, creative, you're in control. But the moment your conscious mind takes off into a thought or starts thinking or whatever going on, uh, it lets go of the wheel, the autopilot takes over, okay? So the idea is this, if your mind is wandering, then you're being run by the subconscious. Uh, uh, and it turns out this is very negative. When your mind is straightforward in consciousness, you're, uh, you're controlling the vehicle. So I say, falling in love has been demonstrated biologically to be equivalent to the red pill because what it does is it keeps you, what do they call, mindful, keeps you conscious. Look, you've been looking for this partner your whole life. They're now in front of your face. This is not the time to go thinking about things. It's time to be, oh, look what I got right here in front of me. And I say, well, think about it this way. Your life could suck every day, every day, every day, every day. And then you meet this person and 24 hours later, it's heaven on earth. 24 hours later, oh my God, I'm so in love. You know, even the job's not so bad anymore. And the food tastes great. And the music is so much better. And love and love and love. I go, what the heck happened? You had all of this negative, negative. And then in 24 hours, you have this heaven on earth. And the answer was, it was taking the red pill. That's what falling in love is. At that moment, you stop playing the program. Now you're operating from conscious mind, which is creative, which by definition is wishes and desires. What the heck do you want from your life? If you answer that question, it's a creative answer. And by definition, it's conscious. So your wishes and desires are in your conscious mind. In a normal person's life, 5% of the day, you're moving toward that. 95% you're playing the program. You fall in love. 100, it was actually 90%, I think is the number, 90% from conscious mind. 90% of the day you are now operating from creative wishes and desires. I go, look, I said your life sucked all the way up and then 24 hours of operating on wishes and desires and not playing the program turned earth into heaven for you at that moment. And, and then you go, well, how come the honeymoon doesn't last? I go, 
because inevitably you still have to think about things, your job, your chores, your requirements, what you have to do. And at some point, once you start thinking, then the conscious mind is shut off. And guess what shows up? All those behaviors in the subconscious mind that were negative, 70%. And your partner, remember your partner and you fall in love, same time, both of you operating from conscious mind with wishes and desires. And all of a sudden you start thinking and then this behavior shows up that was your mother, your father, or whatever thing you learn. And your partner is like, where the hell did that come from? Who are you? Is a response. It's like, where did that come from? I, you know, we've been in this honeymoon. I've never seen that behavior. If you would have played that behavior on the first date, maybe we wouldn't have a second date, but now it shows up. And I say, why did it show up? Because I stopped being mindful. Okay. So how do you teach people to keep the honeymoon alive? It's to change the, the subconscious program. And, and it's simple for reason, reasoning is simple. Conscious mind, wishes and desires, subconscious mind program. Well, what if you took the wishes and desires and made those programs? Ah, then guess what? You don't even have to think about it. You will automatically 95% of the day be playing behaviors to manifest those wishes and desires. So reprogramming the subconscious with wishes and desires means you don't even have to think about it. So when you fall in love, the cocktail of chemicals coming out of your brain are things that enhance your vitality, your life, make you healthier, happier, and joy. I go, the same person, if they open their eyes and see something that scares them, none of those love chemicals are gonna come out of the brain. At that moment, stress hormones and inflammatory agents are gonna be released by the brain. All of a sudden I say, well, then you change the chemical composition of the culture medium. I go, yeah, result? The composition of the culture medium controls the fate of the cells. The composition of your blood controls the fate of your cells. The composition of your blood based on the picture in your mind. Change the picture, you change the chemistry. Almost everybody has the same wishes and desires. To be in love, to be happy, to be healthy, to be peaceful. That's a standard wish and desire of everybody. And if we all lived with those wishes and desires, this planet would change overnight. We would have harmony. We would have peace. We would have nature, uh, community, environment. But until we change those subconscious programs, then we become victims of the program and not creators of our life. And when this is understood, then people can say, wait, I have a choice. I say, you do. You can play the programs you're playing or you can rewrite those programs and take power back. And that's our destination. Hi, I'm Bruce Lipton, author of the best-selling books of biology, belief, spontaneous evolution, and the honeymoon effect. You know that knowledge is power, but more importantly, a lack of knowledge is a lack of power. And science is revealing a whole new understanding of who we are. We've been programmed to be victims, and yet science and quantum physics and the new science of epigenetics especially reveal that we're not victims, but we are creators. So with the knowledge of the new science, we can manifest heaven on earth. That would be our way of life. And in this regard, while I talk about this a lot, there's an idea that pictures present a thousand words and an animation actually represents millions of words. And that's why I'm so excited and in gratitude to After School, because After School has taken the complexity of the words and made it in the simplicity of the images. And that's how we can learn more knowledge, more power. I hope this presentation enhances the quality and character of your life.
That's always the best. That's the best. Okay, Ram, you got maybe a song. I think it's time, right, for a song. Yeah. Hello. 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 That's right, Rainbird, before the song. (laughs) (laughs) You're forgetting Uh, me. Yeah, before the song, and Bruce Lipton was a great place to end it, so... I, oh, I, I, I just moved right along to the song and just wanted to say looking forward to this afternoon and thank you for tonight. We all enjoyed it, I know. And I'm passing this talking stick, Rama. What you got? <laughs> um, this is um, Enya. May it be.
Okay. Thank you, Rama. That was great. <laughs> um, good night, good night, everyone. Sweet dreams and see you this afternoon, as Rainward says. Aloha, Satnam. Satnam Ji. Thirteen. Thank you. It's honey in the heart. No evil. And live long and prosper, everyone. Namaste.